Give me an F. 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 Give me an A. 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 Give me an S. S. Give me a C. 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 Give me an ism. Ism. What's that spell? Fascism. What's that spell? Fascism. 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 Duncan and Bo come correct. Hey everyone, welcome back to Duncan and Bo are too icky to be sticky. <laughs> too cool for school. Too cool to be school. That's uh, right. Uh, pretty it, fly for a white guy. Duncan and Bo are pretty fly for a white guy. You welcome <laughs> to the show. I'm Bo. Uh, this is Duncan. Hello. And uh, we have been doing this show for about forty-five years now. That was just Twin Peaks. That was just Twin Peaks. That was only the Twin Peaks stuff. But uh, it kept so, looping, it kept looping back on itself. Whenever it finished, it started again. Yeah, and, and I would yell out, "What year is it?" And uh, you would be uh, Laura Palmer, I suppose, in that scenario. Um, well, yep. Then that was always going to be the case. <laughs> yeah. Now, once I said out loud, I was like, "Well, naturally, he was Laura Palmer." <laughs> So what we do on the show, uh, if you've never listened before, uh, which is possible, we we talk about uh, a series or a movie or whatever. In this case, we are going through the series Too Old to Die Young by Nicholas Winding Refn. Um, it is uh, available on Amazon Prime. I will not say that correctly again. <laughs> yeah. It will become Netflix or Hulu or Roku or something it's, else. It's an Apple Channel exclusive. <laughs> For the debut of their new service. No, uh, and a lot of people are worried, hey, I never, I don't watch the show, so I don't, I don't feel like I can listen to this. And to that I say, nay, listen. No, yeah. uh, we're we're going to walk through the, the plot, and if you feel like watching it, I encourage it, but it's kind of hard to spoil a Nicholas Winding Refn project, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Like, we can tell you what happens, but that's only half the story. And then uh, there are dumb voices along the way. So yes. uh, for new listeners, that is the the summary for old listeners. Uh, hey, welcome back. How you doing? Sit down. Put your feet up. <laughs> but don't take your shoes off. That's gross. Yeah, that That's is gross. Familiar. Gross. So, you know, all right. As you may or may not know, Duncan, uh, I often um, do a fair amount of research when it comes to... Uh, Asian films, and in particular, Japanese film, which Mm -hmm. leads to a bit of Japanese culture. And Mm -hmm. it is one of the things I've been uh, reading this this new History of Japan book that I really like. And one of the things I keep coming back to is the whole practice of taking your shoes off when you enter a house. Yes, yes. And that to me is, it's just a totally cultural thing. It's just unheard of. (laughs) And... You know, like, I'm willing to grant you sock feet. Like, I don't wear shoes around all the time. But I, but if you are a guest in my home, I expect your shoes to remain on. And if they don't, there better be socks. Maybe two layers. I think it's more just from a kind of... I don't know, actually. I think it's just an honor thing. I think it's just no outside stuff in. Sure, I, okay. I understand it, but, you know... Uh, I, I know the people I, I'm around and I don't want their feet. <laughs> Doesn't mean I like it, Duncan. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not proud of it. 
but it, it's one of those things that when I when I come up and I'm reading uh, something about that of like you know the ceremonial nature of the culture. Um, mm-hmm. It's like there are a handful that I'm like, that's really great. Like the uh, tea ceremony, for example, yes. is like, oh, what a beautiful, uh, like it, the silence approaching the ceremony. And like the whole thing is just kind of beautiful. And then you hear something like, oh, well, just strangers take off their stinky shoes and walk right into your house unbidden. Uh, <laughs> that's the point where I we diverge. <laughs> anyway, what, what's up with you, Duncan? Anything crazy going on? Uh, not a lot. Um, a lots of nineties uh, watching for yeah. my podcast, which is about to kick off a massive series. And uh, to be honest, um, out with that binge watch that new Stranger Things season. Uh, how is you, it? I know you kind of went off it. Mm-hmm. I would say now is the time to get back on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really liked the new season. A lot to a lot to like in it. The kind of I know some people weren't too sure on the second season. I quite liked the second season. Third season is the best by far. It's the, the one that really kind of embraces what a show like that needs to embrace, which is a bit more of its goonies. Um, and uh, it, it, it knows how to have a whole hell of a lot of fun. Like the there's a moment in the show where a character out of nowhere starts singing a duet of the never-ending story in a way which made me smile from ear to ear. And it comes out, it blindsided me out of nowhere. And when you think, oh, that's not, and it just keeps going. I was like, that's it, no, it just keeps going. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it might be the one to maybe, I know a lot of your issues were maybe more about its pushing of 80s culture. Um, which is not going to go away. <laughs> like that sure, I don't mind it being set in the eighties, but it just it felt like there was a whole lot of hey, remember this? Well, there's there's a lot of kind of pushing the idea of the mall, the American mall in the eighties. Um, but yeah, zombies? I really I, <laughs> I can't tell you that. Uh, there's no, there's a lot to there's a lot to enjoy in it, um, and it really gets kind of ludicrous. And it's very funny in parts. So okay, uh, I, do I need to go back and watch? Uh, no. Okay. Perfect. No. All right. All right. So I, I'll give. Uh, I'm kind of at a point now where I'm kind of wrapped up a, a series I was watching, so mm-hmm. I can uh, I can sneak in a little uh, stranger thing. I'll, I'll give it a day in court. I just I got about an episode and a half into season two. I was just like, I'm not having fun. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know. The thing is about season two is season two. I think the show kind of forgets, and and season two particularly it forgets what made season one kind of so interesting and it's the idea of this we've got this girl who has this like ability and it's really cool and the marvel of that ability to face evil and season two i don't think we see any of our powers for like four episodes and that's not cool <laughs> right you know what I mean? right well what are we why are we dicking around here we got a you know a scanners girl yeah and- you get they get they lean into it heavily in season three, but in a way which is at times very playful. Um, Winona Ryder is brilliant in a uh, big um, what's his face uh, Hooper, the guy who the plays Hooper, um, David Harbour. Uh, yeah, he's br- it's maybe the best he's been in the whole thing. Um, and yeah, there's a lot to really enjoy about it. I think. You know, I say I think if you if you were kind of cold on season two, season three will win you over. And obviously, Netflix have announced in the last two days that they are looking to wrap up season four. So okay, I, I'll give it a look. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not look. I, I am the last person to pass judgment in a way that will will burn a bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like I think the fact that we are doing this show at all 
is proof positive that I'm willing to change my mind about something. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, although I will say, well, I'm like I'm so excited about like doing these particular two episodes because so another couple of pure Lynch moments. <laughs> yeah, there, certainly, and I gotta say, you put John Hawk in anything. Oh, he's and, brilliant, and I'm yeah. already more excited to watch it. And the way that episode three opens. Yeah. They, like the very open of it is like, well, why doesn't every show open this way? <laughs> this I can't I can't wait till we get to the fascism song bo. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's get to it. Uh before we jump into the show, let's talk about uh what we've been watching, good and bad. Um the good we're both gonna hold off on a, a, a slightly more interactive conversation. But mm-hmm. I I'm curious, Duncan, what have you been watching that's bad? <laughs> don't know why I did this. I really don't know why I did this. Um, <laughs> you sound like me. Go on. <laughs> uh, I watched Cold Pursuit. Do you know much about this? Cold Pursuit. It sounds familiar, but, but please go on. This is the Liam Neeson comedy, thriller, action, dark comedy movie. This is the one that he was doing that press junket for. Um, oh, when he was like, oh, I don't, I don't care for black people much. Yeah, that's the, that's the press junket for this one, um, and this is a hot mess. Oh my good god, almighty! This is a hot mess so much so that Laura Dern's in it. Okay, and I love Laura Dern. Laura, Laura Dern plays Liam Neeson's wife in this one, and it's almost as if at the fifteen minute mark she gets a whiff of how bad this movie is, and her character exits and we don't get to see her exit <laughs> and yeah. we may it may be the best exit in movie history um and uh she leaves a note on the bed and all her clothes are gone and Liam Neeson opens the note and lifts it out and it's just a blank sheet of paper that's how much she fucking hates him um it's, like, that's it's worth it just watching it for that uh, this movie does not have a clue what it wants to be like genuinely does not have a clue what it wants to be it there's some moments where it feels like it's trying to be Fargo. There's some moments where it's trying to be maybe something like Ocean's Eleven um, or that a, a Smoking Aces movie. And then sure. there's other other moments where it's trying to to be like a, a kind of proper revenge thriller. And it's like none of the aspect, it's like none of the pieces fit together at all and the person that's trying to put them together is wearing um like oven gloves <laughs> it's just it's a tonal mess i mean there are moments there are sections in it that work really really well but none of it works together as a whole um liam neeson is like has fully embraced by this point now we're in liam neeson can only act one way and that is the way of this man who will get revenge about you know that is that sort of way um and then the Castleston is just nuts. It's just like, like Laura Dern. I don't know how they got Laura Dern at all. I, I imagine it was a quick payday for her, and that's the only reason she jumped in. But it's based on a, I believe it's based on a Scandinavian novel. Um, well, it's a remake I, of a movie that the the guy who directed the remake also directed the original. It's kind of a funny game scenario where uh, he re- he directed his own movie again. Right, so it's uh, yeah, it's based on a Norwegian film. So yeah, I, which makes sense because this is mostly set in snow, and they've set it in the case of this one in 
just outside Denver, Colorado. Right. According so, to the poster, a place called Kehoe. Kehoe, that's right. And um, it, I don't... I mean, there are some elements that are kind of... It has a particular aesthetic style, which I quite enjoy. And um, like I say, there are moments that are very much trying to be Fargo. Like, very much trying to be Fargo. Um, but it just doesn't really all pull together at all. And as a result, you're watching it and you're like... Am I supposed to right, that, am I supposed to be laughing at this bit? Wait, this is kind of try. What are we doing here now? Right, I don't get this. Oh, that was kind of funny. Right now, I, I don't know what we're doing and why we're we doing this and why. Like, it, it's so tonally all over the place. I am keen to hear your thoughts on it. I would love to have a conversation with you somewhere down the line about the the hodgepodge of nonsense that is called pursuit. All right, I, I'll tell you what. If you want one day, uh, you watch Now You Can See Me Too. I've seen that. <laughs> All right, which is also a hodgepodge of nonsense. Yeah. Oh, totally. So uh, it's the sequel to a, a movie that didn't need a sequel, uh, made by actors who didn't need to be in the sequel with a plot that makes no fucking sense. Yeah, and once, uh, what's his name, Woody Harrelson shows up playing a second character... It's mm-hmm. like get the fuck out of here! No, you can see me too. Yeah, like th- that is not the movie you ought to be. And also, where now everyone's just straight up doing Harry Potter magic. Yep, it's not even the Harry Potter magic. Is the is you know <laughs> is Morgan Freeman, Freeman a bad guy or is he a good guy? We can't make up our mind. Now we'll play him as a bad guy, but he's actually a good guy. But he's not really. He's a bad guy. I'd like all the way throughout the movie. I'm like, why is he even in this movie? Right, right. Yep. If there are no penguins, there should be no Morgan Freeman. That is my exactly. motto. That is the rule. That is the rule. So yeah, um, yeah. That's a whole. That's a whole heap of nonsense. Cold Pursuit is tonally worse than. Now you can see. It. I, I can't wait for you to watch it, just so you can get about like maybe fifteen minutes into it, and Laura Dern leaves, and then you're like, she made the correct choice. <laughs> right. Why did she leave, and and I stay? Um, oh, what about yourself? What's your bad? My bad movie is one entitled uh, Monster Party. And I I was trying to look up real quick if this was a Shudder exclusive or not. It's one that they featured heavily, certainly. But anyway, the, the premise of it is not bad, mm-hmm. uh, which is that you have a trio of young thieves who um, are not necessarily looking to rob a place but then fall into a situation where they are working as hosts and hostesses for a swanky party at a house that they're like, oh, we should look around and see if we can find a safe. Because mm-hmm. clearly this is a uh, a fancy house. What is unknown to them is that the function that they are working is a celebratory support group of sorts for a bunch of people who are all serial killers. That sounds amazing. It does sound amazing. Uh, unfortunately, it's not very good. <laughs> oh, no. And it's... I'll tell you, when I heard the line, fuck off, you fucking fuck, I knew I was... <laughs> that's an actual line from the movie, where I was like, ugh, that's not good. Um, that's something I say for goofs. That's not a, a thing that ought to be in a movie. I think I used to have a t-shirt that said that. <laughs> sure. Uh, they just hand it to you when you're born in Scotland. Um, b- but the thing that's really frustrating about the movie 
is that it has such a cool premise. Uh, Lance Reddick, the guy who plays like the concierge in the John Wick movies and uh-huh. has been in everything. Um, he is one of the killers and he's got some gravitas. There's kind of a neat bit where he shows up to the party with this young woman who, as soon as she passes by the, you know, the employees, the kids in the movie, mouths the words, help me to them. And, Mm -hmm. and then at a certain point in the movie, she just, they, like when the shit hits the fan, they find her and she's just offed herself. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that's really cool. I wish I knew why she did that. Because Lance Reddick has been the one, like, the the dude in the movie who's like, hey, we can't be animals. We can't kill people. He's like the head of the support group. And anyway, it just doesn't make any sense. And nothing that the kids do is very clever. Like, once they realize the situation they're in, it should be that kind of green room vibe almost of like, how do we use our wits to get out of a situation where we are completely surrounded by monsters? Yeah. And it just doesn't do anything with any of that. And, and like, it's just them like, Oh, I'm in the room and we're going to kind of negotiate our way out. And then we get out for a second and then we all scuffle and somebody dies. And then we run off for a little bit and it kind of rinses and repeats a couple of times, but Uh. it's not like at any point they're like, Oh, because I know, because we're thieves and I know how to do this thing, here's a way we can get out. And it, it just feels like so much of a missed opportunity because the premise was so good. And like mm-hmm. Robin Tunney is in it, who you may remember from the movie, uh, geez, what was the movie that wasn't Event Horizon, but it was kind of the sci-fi horror movie set in space? Oh, uh, she gets naked in it is what I remember about the movie. Yeah, she does. Oh, yeah, she does. Uh, Um, It's like Supernova. Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay. Yes, it is. It is, in fact, Supernova. So directed by Walter Hill. No shit. Who? Mm -hmm. But he he just didn't put his name on it as it happens. Yeah, of course not. Anyway. (laughs) Um. Wow, I need to go back and watch that movie. That's got a lot of people in it. And I don't remember it being very good at all. It's it's possible. Okay. Possible. I should go back and watch that. Anyway, so uh yeah, so she's in it and uh and she's all right, but there's this thing where it's like, oh, she has this speech at the beginning of the movie where she talks about how um where her husband uh, as a killer doesn't miss it. You know, he struggles with not killing, but he doesn't miss the act of killing. And she's mm-hmm. like, Oh, not me. I remember like seeing the life drain from someone's eyes. That's when I felt my best. And like setting her up to be especially savage. And that doesn't really pay off. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why even have a, a for realsies actress like Robin Tunney in this role? If you're not going to have fun with it, like Selma Blair in mom and dad. Like, mm-hmm. she seems to be having a good time in that movie because she's doing all kinds of crazy shit. Yeah. And that's what you need a Robin Tunney to be doing is crazy shit. And it's just her walking around looking, you know, frantic for the movie. It's anyway, it's a real bummer that that is a bad movie. Yeah, the premise sounds amazing as well. Yeah, it it, it has a very cool premise, but yeah. Oh, no. I know, I know. Um, but Duncan... Uh-huh. Let us not uh bury Caesar. Let us praise him. Yes, praise him. Um <laughs> with a movie that you and I have both seen uh since last we spoke, or I think you had just seen it when we, we talked last time. 
Yep. And I had not, but now I have. Uh, the movie, of course, is Midsummer. Um, this is going to be very spoilery, so I will put a time code on the uh, the show notes to let you know where you can resume listening if you do not want to hear spoilers for Midsummer. This is your final warning. Spoilers for Midsummer beginning now. Look at the notes, and it'll be there when you can listen again. All right. See you on the other side, uh, cowards. But for all the people sticking around, Duncan. It was mole people. <laughs> that you don't know how high this goes, Duncan. All the way to the top. Let's. Uh, so, Midsummer is Ari Aster, uh, aka Mister Hereditary's mm-hmm. uh, sophomore feature. Is that right? Was Hereditary's first? It was his first uh, feature length movie. Holy shit! Um, that's well. That's why. It's <laughs> two reasons why we should marvel at Midsummer. First, this is his second feature coming off the back of a very critically acclaimed amazing like powerful you know voice uh in horror cinema to come back and do a second movie which is i said to you before the fucking balls on a guy to go from a movie a previous movie which is so dark to a movie which is so bright um in style not in content <laughs> yeah i was gonna say it's not exactly a, a happy-go-lucky kind of movie yeah, but to, to to choose an aesthetic which is polar opposite to the previous movie you've done is to shoot any sort of even any horror movie and you know and in, in broad daylight uh, the fucking balls, but yeah, I I think that's true, uh, but also just what the movie is oh, yeah. is so audacious, mm-hmm. and and so let's just start here. The the crowd I saw the movie with did not care for it at all. Yep, the crowd I saw with the first time. So I saw it two times in the same day. Right? Wow, I, okay. Right, as I saw it early in the morning so I could get my review done and posted out. And then I got invited to go and see it at night time, like very late at night with two friends who were gone. So I went to see it. On the second watch, my second watch, I picked out a whole hell of a lot of stuff I did not pick out in my first watch. Um, very much like most Aster movies, there's a ton of things happening in the background um, that kind of guide where the story's going. But yes, I saw it twice in the same day. Um, it's two and a half hours a pop, so it's five hours of hereditary in one day. Um, so yeah. <laughs> you know it's I mean? a lot. It's a lot. And, yeah, and the first screening I saw it in, um, some people got up and left. The second screening I saw it in, some people got up and left. So, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't have it. Uh, I don't know that anybody left. Maybe, maybe one person left, but or one couple left. But it was a lot of uh, there. There was a couple um, to the left of me that were clearly there on a date. Oh, this is not a date movie. What no. It is not, and um, and I think he picked the movie, and I don't. But but he wasn't having a good time either. Like it wasn't like I think it was just like, hey, there's a new horror movie out from the Billy, gu- from the guy. What did Hereditary? And Billy taking your partner to go and see Blue is the warmest color or Possession. You know what I mean? Like, right. Oh yeah, it is. For beginnings, it's not a movie you want to watch with someone that you are dating. Because <laughs> no. it's going to bring up a conversation you probably don't want to have. <laughs> <laughs> the the other thing is, like I was as I was walking in, I was I was, I was talking to my buddy Chad, who I do the Pig Six shows with. I was telling him because mm-hmm. he had read the uh, the synopsis of the movie mm-hmm. and was like, "Is it? It sounds fucking crazy." 
And I was yep. like, it is, but it's crazier because of the execution of it. Yes. And, and, but I'm walking into the theater and ahead of me is a, you know, is this couple. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know that they're the demographic for a two and a half hour full horror film. <laughs> this should be interesting. And and like I said, they like they as, as they're getting up to leave. The, what the woman says to the boyfriend is, "Huh, nice movie." And I was like, "Wow, that is." Uh, she's gonna go on her own trip to Sweden pretty soon. <laughs> but yeah, so it's a it's a divisive movie. There are plenty of people who have seen this movie and are like, "I fucking hate this movie," and I understand that. I get it. I don't. I'll be I'll be the opposite way. I don't get it. I don't get I, I don't get how anyone who claims to like cinema could hate this movie. I, no, no, no. I'm not saying that these are people who like who claim to like cinema. I'm saying these are run of the mill moviegoers. But why would a run of the mill moviegoer go and see Hereditary? Because uh, sorry, go and see Midsummer. Because horror is hot right now. Yeah, but these people, these people, it's plastered all over the poster that this is from the director of Hereditary. And I, I, I put down money right now that if you've seen Hereditary and you didn't like Hereditary, what would compel you to go and see Midsummer? Yeah. What would compel you to think this director would do a movie which is going to be a mainstream, you know, horror fair, which is going to be dumb and boring? And like when you have a movie which is so crammed full of subtext, what makes you think his follow-up movie is going to be any fucking different? I, I, this is what I, I have no sympathy for people that go and see a movie which they know fine well they're not going to enjoy and then complain about the fact he didn't enjoy it. Right, yeah, I don't think they knew that they wouldn't enjoy it. I don't think they had any idea. Like, the, these are people who have never heard the term folk horror. You yeah, know? but the trailer, Bo, the trailer. You know, does this trailer pivot this movie in a way which was different? Did you see the trailer? No. Yeah, uh, yeah, I saw it in, uh, right. it played in front of Pet Cemetery. <laughs> did this, you're right, did this trailer like play off as some sort of me like run-of-the-mill main fair horror movie or did it like did it play off this idea that it was going to be this really heady really twisted really depressed and horror outing? i think it was a lot yeah, yeah but i i think that me watching that trailer and joe sixpack watching that trailer are seeing kind of two different trailers I don't know if they, I, I think you give Joe Sixpack too much credit. I'm giving him credit. no credit. That's the yeah. point. I am saying this guy and or gal don't know, uh, you know, Wicker Man from nothing and just wanted a good time out at the theater with the new scary movie and just didn't know what they were getting themselves into. And as the movie unfolds, it is in no way making an effort, which is the thing I love kind of about the movie is that it it does not explain itself. It does not apologize for itself. It is not there to spoon feed you anything. It is just like, here is this story of, you know, our, uh, our, our main character. What's her name? Um, you saw it twice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's Danny. Danny. Right. Yeah. And of Danny g- tagging along on this trip. And here is what unfolds. Hmm. And, no, I do not think this is a movie for everyone. I think that if you, like you said, I think if you saw Hereditary and were like, "Well, that seems a little artsy fartsy," you have yeah. no idea. If you went, to, if you went to go and see Midsummer, then shame on you. 
Not shame on not shame on the production company, not shame on the director, not shame on the actors or anything. If you went to see the movie after seeing Hereditary, a movie that you didn't like, then it's your fucking fault. And you should award yourself zero stars and go and sit in the corner and shut the fuck up. Yeah, like that is literally that, that's how that's how militant I am about this. I read people posting about this one. People are posting online about this. You know, that's me. I'm done with you know Ari Aster. And I was like, I'm sure I read the same thing last year. I'm sure, I read the same thing last year when you saw Hereditary. What did you expect? This is this is this guy's wheelhouse. Sure. This, this would be like going to see a Robert Rodriguez movie and having no CGI. You know, this would be like going to see a Quentin Tarantino movie and not having long expository dialogue and feet. You know what I mean? This is like, I don't know how you don't go. I, I don't know how anyone could go and see this movie, one, not expecting it to be Art House AF, right, which is, and two, not come out this with a newfound love for cinema, even if you don't like the story, the technical feat of this movie is ridiculous. The, this movie does the best job of simulating a drug trip of any oh, film I've ever seen. Yeah, dear God Almighty, and like right from right from the off, like right from the off, you know you're in something. You're in special territory. I will give all the credit in the world to Ari Aster. There is no one right now that makes a movie like Ari Aster. Like, no one. Even if he is yeah. emulating or updating or revising or picking a little bit from column A and column B from 60s and 70s, in the case of this one, Scandinavian folk horror cinema. I mean, everyone likes, everyone keeps leaning back into Wicker Man as being, and I understand why you're leaning back to Wicker Man as being like a big influence in this one. But the bottom line is, Scandinavian folk horror predates Wicker Man. In fact, Wicker Man was emulating Scandinavian folk horror. Like movies like Tess, uh, for example, or movies like The the Black Narcissus. Like these movies from the, from the like 50s and kind of the 70s. Uh, you know, this was the, the that's what they did. That's what Scandinavian horror was. It was all this weird, folksy, trippy shit. And um, uh, Harding, when he decided that he was going to do his um, his movie, The Wicker Man, if anything, it was more influenced that way. So, like, and, and the compar, I think the comparisons to Wicker Man are lazy. Like, I really, really, really do. Yes, it, it hits certain beats of Wicker Man, but. Um, it's not the same movie. It's not a remake. Um, oh, no, character, no, no. Yeah, character motivations are completely different. The story it tells is completely different. The ending couldn't be any more different if it tried. Um, and it's it's fundamentally at its core not a, a, a story about God versus paganism or belief versus non-belief. I mean, at its core, this movie is weirdly a, a relationship movie. I, yeah, you know and I, I mean? would I would go even one further in that it's yeah it, I mean yes it's a ba- it's about a bad relationship, but it's sort of about Danny finding family. the support group she's yeah. always wanted and needed. Yeah, the, the family that she's the, the the family that she is trying to replace through a support group of people that should have been there for after the worst fucking thing that could have happened or happened to her. Or even before, man. I mean, like, the, the one of the first shots of the movie is her looking at her phone, and, and it's a bunch of people not picking up her call. Yeah. And so, like, from the very beginning, I, and this was, again, a conversation I had with uh, 
with, with Chad about the fact yeah. that like, hey, here's everything that happens in the movie. It's like, the, yeah, but that's not what it's about. The opening shot of this movie is a storyboard that opens and the storyboard depicts everything that happens in the movie. Yes. Drawn. It tells you the whole fucking story not only that right like this is what the second watch gave me the second watch gave me fucking so much detail and um, right after our family kills him well right after our family is murdered by our suicidal bipolar yeah. sister and um, which is a scene that is so fucking horrific that like the following that hose through the house is it's oh. it reminded me of that shot in poltergeist where you're following the dog yeah except just... way worse <laughs> The thing is, like, see the opening shot, see on the second watch, when she phones her parents the first time and we think her parents are asleep, if you listen to the sim design, you can hear the exhaust fumes, you can hear air being pumped oh, out of the room. Oh, yeah. It's so much better on the second watch, right? But the 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 first shot of our post, that where she's being woken up in her bed, right, by fucking our, our shitty boyfriend Christian um, wakes up and asks her if she wants to go to the party or not, right? Above her bed is a picture. The picture is of a crimmed princess um, patting a bear on the head. And I'm like, the, the, the symbolism in this movie is all the way fucking right through it. Like, yeah. every, every bit of art in this movie, everything that's painted on the walls, it's all in there it's all in there if you just look and some people i've read some people saying well it telegraphs where it's going if you didn't know where this movie was going like earlier <laughs> oh we're going to this cult that only practices something every 90 years that to me screams human sacrifice right like, <laughs> somebody gonna die <laughs> yeah, someone's gonna die pretty quick i'm just gonna guess we're not gonna all make it out alive um, sure like all, every 90 years we go out into the world and recruit somebody from all these different cultures and countries what yeah. the fuck do you think they're gonna do you're there to be a sacrifice of course you are but, so like but all, like but some people are like yeah telegraphs too but like that it's not about the the what I think people are getting hot. It's, it's not about the end of this movie, right? Because the end of this movie, very much like the end of Hereditary, left me weirdly uplifted. Like, the final shot ends with this kind of... If you imagine music... Like, music exists in the major key or the minor key. The minor key denotes sadness, and the major key denotes, like, positivity and happiness. This movie finishes with a crescendo that ends on this hugely happy sounding fucking chord this big ah, yeah. you know, very much like hereditary finished and it is weird like both times goose goosebumps on the arms a deep intake of breath for me and watery eyes just from the power of this crescendo at the end of the movie and i walk out the movie buzzing in on cloud nine and trying to weirdly well skipping my step whilst my brain is like marred and and the darkest recesses try to like work out why the fuck I feel the way I do at a movie which is so uh, profoundly grim, um, and the the I can't the power of this movie the power of this movie but the ending's not the important bit the 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 ceremony at the end is not the important bit at all and if that's if that's what you take away from it oh I always knew someone was going to end up getting burned alive in a fucking building when they said no one can get into the building or I knew something was going to happen with the bear or whatever they thought right when going to the story that's not the purpose of the story This it's the same as the wicker man right in that respect the wicker man is not about 
um, you know, Edward Woodward being burned at the end. If that was the case, then the rewatch value in Wicker Man would be slight. You know what I mean? The rewatch value for the Wicker Man is the weird, trippy, delusional mystery of a guy trying to work out whilst he thinks he has a handle on everything that's happening to realise that the game he's been playing is a game that's older than him and he is the fool at the centre of it. Right. Like he he lost as soon as he agreed to play. Yeah, as soon as as soon as yeah. he as soon as he landed on the island, his fate was his fate was sealed. And that's where Midsummer shines. Because everyone that arrives here has their role already defined for them and all of them play exactly into because the villagers are like they know what they're doing. And it's following their journey through and watching characters try and work things out whilst at the same time being like charmed, marveled at the 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 the, uh, the visual the visual beauty of this movie, juxtaposed with once again a scene of out and out hot see when that old woman's face smashes off that rock, you could have heard a fucking pin drop in the cinema. Yeah. Twice. Twice. Yeah, yeah, that shut the, the, the naysayers up in mind too. Uh, yeah, especially when they have to bring out the hammer for the old dude. Oh, see what, like, see what the camera pans around before they've even jumped in. It was a man standing there with a hammer. The first thing I said in the first and second view was, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, you just know, no one needs a hammer that size, Bo. Right, <laughs> right. It is a head-cracking hammer. Uh, yeah, I, I like that moment's really, really shocking. The, the thing that I really found most enjoyable i think about uh midsummer aside from the fact that you know i i, I don't think you can say enough about florence Pugh in the oh, late she performance is. she is so good she, but you know the the grief that she lets out the 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 grief she lets out at the start when she gets the news i like you know me i'm like the least emotional person yeah. when it comes to things and i could feel like like icy chills on it was a painful hurtful tear and Ari Aster is a fucking genius to be able to pick these strong female characters that can portray grief in a way which cuts you to your fucking core like heart and tea I wanted to hug her (laughs) sure get in the fucking way Christian you're shit at this I'll right yeah like and that's the thing is like Christian is such an asshole in this movie Mm -hmm. the the scene where he the where the scene ends with him staring at the door when you're like is he about to break up with her Oh god! Yeah. And and then realizing, oh no, he went totally the other way with this, which is probably the wrong decision. It's totally the wrong decision. Like he still friend, would have died, but yeah, his friends knew it was the wrong decision. Yeah, um, and you know he wouldn't listen to him, and we realize very very quickly it's because he is like the most opportunistic person. On the plat, like see when, like see the the awkwardness of the conversation of them at that party, and she's like, "You're going to Sweden for, you're going away to Sweden." And he's like that, thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, what I mean? and they're like, "So wh- where's it happening?" And he's like, "Yeah, it's uh, uh, June, July time." And then the guy, the guy goes, "Yep, it's two weeks." And then the awkward silence, it just kind of ripples well but <laughs> and, but the way she folds when she confronts him on that oh yeah because because he, he threatens to leave he well, threatens yeah to and, leave. 
And God bless her, all she wants th- this entire movie is just somebody to to care about her. Doesn't he, he doesn't remember when her fucking birthday is. Right. Um, he could not give a tiny rat's ass about her. And yeah, that's what like there's so many facets about this movie that I just genuinely loved. And to me, and I know I'm not undeclaring my support for Jordan Peele. I love Jordan Peele, right? Jordan Peele has had two great movies, one masterpiece and one really interesting movie. I don't think we're given an... Uh, maybe we are, or maybe we're not. I think that Ari Aster is a far more challenging director. I, sure. Yes, I think he is, he is the better director. But like, but like Jordan Peele is much more of a, a Spielberg Yes, you know yes, yes. he's he's a very mainstream kind of director. Yeah, Ari he's, Aster he's a, is Cronenberg or Cronenberg. He's I, like I, it was Polanski that kept running through my mind. I was thinking if Polanski made if Polanski ever made a folk horror movie, I think it'd be like Midsummer. It would be very similar. Yes, uh, it, right. But it's that level. Like you know, I mean, again, not to diminish Jordan Peele to raise Ari Aster. They're both brilliant filmmaker oh yeah like let's let's put this way one movie made like what 350 million this year midsummer will not make 350 million this year you know what i mean yeah midsummer ain't gonna make that kind of money but (laughs) what it's going to allow ari aster to do is uh, i think it's doing well enough that he's going to be able to make another couple more movies and and do it his way he has already said that he thinks he has a third and final idea about family about loss and about paganism in him that he wants to do and that man has me there at the opening fucking night yeah front row for that movie because i i, I would love to see him do other things like you know what i mean but he does this so fucking well you know what I mean? yeah no fuck that just keep doing this shit because like i thought hereditary was really real like hereditary i i think is incredible up into up until the last act and, and see, there's that's the difference with me and you. I think the last act is what solidifies it as a, a bona fide classic for me. But I mean, I still like it, but it's just like, eh, I just, I, it felt like we were in rarefied air and then it kind of becomes a horror movie. Yeah. And then Midsummer comes along and it's like, well, this is even better. This is like everything, <laughs> everything I liked about Hereditary, only it just gets cooler in the third act. Yeah. And when it gets gruesome and whatnot, it like we've already been there. Like the kind of the goriest stuff happens with this movie has surprisingly little. Like it has a like has five minutes collectively of what I would class as a gory, shocking scene. Yeah, and then the rest is tame in comparison to pretty much any other horror movie you're going to see at the cinema this year. And that's the genius of it. I yeah. mean, I think. I think I love just I love just reading people post on Facebook that they were processed they were trying to process what they'd seen, and I'm like, yeah, that, give me all the t-. like last week I reveled in how much fun a child's play was right child's play go and see that movie it's ridiculous over the top gore it's comedy it's dark it's funny it's witty and all the rest, and then give me Midsummer in the cinema as well because there's enough space in the world for both those fucking movies to exist in the same fucking week at the cinema there's enough space for it and you know and i can i can go and enjoy one for one thing and then i can and switch off my brain when i watch child's play and then i can watch 
Midsummer and feel like my brain has an army of ants crawling all over it from start to finish. I, I like, I am, I love this guy. I genuinely love this guy. This to be like when people are like people are already posting about what's the, your favorite horror movies you've seen this year. Two fucking movies, right? Are my favorite horror movies this year. Midsummer, One Cut of the Dead, couldn't be any more different as they tried. But I think they are pushing the boundaries of what horror cinema can and should be doing in 2019. Taking, like, styles or taking ideas, updating them, putting your own spin on them, hyper-stylizing them, or, or leaning into... And the, the, the weird thing about it is both the movies have this idea of broken families coming together. Like, you know what I mean? For the ability they're COVID, it couldn't be fucking any more different if they tried. And I am so excited and I'm so happy. And then... Like I said to you before, this exists in a world where Ari Aster made this movie in under a year. Yeah, yeah. I, I the wonder what between this and Hereditary is a year. I wonder what the budget on this thing was. Six and a half million. Oh, okay. So it's already even domestically, it's already doubled its production budget. Yep. It, it, it made it had made its money back in the weekend. That's, that oh, then, the yeah. Let him make whatever the fuck he wants. Then, if he can keep it under ten million. Shit, let him do whatever. But do you, looking this movie, looking at this movie, would you guess? No, I, I honestly would have said that was probably a twenty million dollar film. It looks. I amazing. mean, the set alike, the set alone, the buildings, the structures. Yeah, the production design on this thing is unbelievable. The score, bro. The score oh, the of this music's... movie is fucking incredible. Yeah, it's it, like just cover to cover. I, it's just one of the best. I think I prefer this even on one watch. I kind of prefer this as far as folk horror. I prefer it to Wicker Man. I think it's a better movie than Wicker Man. I yeah. I think. I mean, the thing is, the thing is, Wicker Man to me is like Wicker Man has had years and years to permeate with me. When I watch Wicker Man, I know I can check out for a good. 15 20 minutes in that movie during a lot of the song stuff, which doesn't really interest me. Yeah, you're um, not kidding. But you know, the like you give me Christopher Lee and Edward Woodward on the screen, you have my attention fucking 100% all the way through. You know what I mean? Like, right. so I, I'm not gonna do that. Midsummer it weirdly has a lot of once again kind of folk song and all the rest, but the folk songs are better. <laughs> like, that dancing sequence is one of the most exciting scenes I've seen in a movie. In some time, and it's just a bunch of people dancing around a fucking maypole. Yeah, but oh, it's God. just the way that it's filmed in that moment where she starts speaking Swedish or whatever, and they're like, and she's like, "Am I? I can understand you now." <laughs> and it, they're just all tripping balls, and like, it's just such an interesting movie. And this yeah. sad moment at the end with stupid Christian in the bear outfit. Yeah just sitting there immobile as he burns and she's like good fucking good riddance yeah you know yeah. and and it, then the camera puns the pans around to her and the fact that it's like she's expunged all this grief she's expunged all this sadness she's surrounded by all this ceremony and she's accepted for who she are who she is amongst a new family and the kind of weird malevolent twisted but at the same time relieved smile that comes over her face as the final fucking shot I, I want to stand up and applaud that shit. I want to scream yeah. bravo and throw roses at the screen bowl. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. And, and my kind of take on it is that, yes, she has found this family, but it's at the cost of her own morality and potentially her own sanity. Yeah. You know, but, but that, uh, so what? 
So what? Yeah. Like she is in a world now with people who are equally bonkers. And people, well, it's not only that people are bonkers that with people that accept her for who she is. Yeah, exactly. That they're the family. Like the 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 moment you see that when she f- sees Christian in the you know uh, the the coach f- fucking yeah um and and wails and everyone does it with her and that oh. was the moment where I was just like. I understand what's going on in this movie now. Yeah, it's such a powerful fucking scene. Such a pa- like them all screaming together in pain and just like, like there are like pure scenes of just powerful fucking cinema. Like yeah. this is this is what cinema is here to do on this planet. It's here to challenge. It's here to make you feel. Um, and it's funny. And- There's some really funny shit in this. Like. Shit in this the, the the line where uh I can't think of the the dude's name it's the one with the the weird eyebrows when uh <laughs> he says I'm sorry actor whose name I can't remember but when he says like hey uh, somebody want to tell th- those girls that they're walking stupid yeah. I, that's a incredibly funny line and yeah it's, uh, it's it was Will Porter's character yeah yeah I mean and the thing is like see if you weirdly though if you listen to my review. Um, it's after the first viewing. I hated that casting choice. I hated it. I really, really did. In fact, I didn't oh, like Jack. I think Jack. he's perfect for that. Yeah, part. I didn't like it. Well, I think it was because it was too early in the morning, Bo. And then I would on the second viewing, I picked up on all the things like the kids are playing the game Skin the Fool. Um, and then obviously what happens to him, he gets skinned. Uh, the fact he is the fool of the group, that's his role to do. And it's been played out from the beginning. And once, like, on the second view, and as soon as I was like, what are those kids playing? Or they're playing Skin the Thorn. I was like, all right, I get it. Totally get it. Did not pick up on that the first time. I was so busy trying to see everything else happening in the movie that I didn't pick up on that throwaway line about it, which totally explains everything that's going to happen to him. Um, yeah. It's like, yeah. I'd like, and once I understood that, I thought the cast was perfect. I just thought he was a bit too douchey. But then when I realized that's his role within the group, is to be the fool and be douchey. That's where I was like, that's genius. Right, Love that yeah. role. Love it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's fantastic. Uh, it, it's certainly, you know, shortlist for best movie of this year. We'll see oh, what yeah. happens. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's one... Between that or One Cut of the Dead for me, genuinely, they yeah. are going to compete and both of them will get a watch at the end. And who, I'll be honest with you, do you know what I said to you after One Cut of the Dead? Do you remember? I, I said to you after I watched that uh, movie. Yeah, full stop, best movie of the year. Yeah, and I said, if I get a movie that's even close to that movie, then I've been completely fucking spoiled this year. And I've got it. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got it in July. And there's still a shitload of stuff still, still to come out this year. But I got it in July. I am, I'm, I'm over the moon. At the beginning of this year, in January, I saw One Cut of the Dead and fell in love. Uh, in July, I saw Midsummer and I fell in love again. I mean... I'm just I I I couldn't be any happier, bro. I, I genuinely love it, and like I say, I I don't want I don't want to be condescending. I don't want to be prickish towards people. But if you're gonna sit there and moan that Midsummer is a boring movie or it's not a horror movie or whatever it is you want to moan about, um, you are wrong. Like you are wrong. It's a challenging movie, for sure. And if you're not up to that challenge, that's fine. There's plenty of generic horror movies out there that will interest and tantalize and, and do all the things that you want it to do. But if you went into Midsummer 
not expecting it to be heavier, not expecting it to be challenging and artistic and full of subtext and and pain and anguish and happiness and joy and sorrow. If you went into that movie and didn't expect that, then you're the skin the fool. Let's skin this fucking fool. Let's get them in the, the let's get them in the hut and let's burn them both because I have no time for people like that who go and see movies that they know fine well there is a very strong probability they'll hate and then feel the need to tell everyone that they hate it. Well, the the only difference I would have, I mean, I don't think you're wrong that th- this movie is not meant for that crowd, but as, as someone who fancies himself a bit of a cinephile, I would rather be, you know, not that you're not being, I'm not, not trying to be the good cop here. I'm just saying like, I, my take on it is like, Hey, you're probably not ready for that, (laughs) but, but you know, even if you didn't like it, at, at least walk away from it, hopefully, um, considering it and thinking about what it was that you didn't like about it. I mean, because that's at the end of the day, if, if it made you feel something, even if it was revulsion, that is what art is there to do. And yes, and, and it does encourage the viewing of film as art, you know, like, like child's play, you can maybe make an argument like, Hey, this isn't art. Uh, mm-hmm. but I, I mean, I haven't seen it. I'm just saying you're remaking child's play. You're not exactly, you know, fucking Cormac McCarthy, but, <laughs> but, and like an air, an Ari Aster film, there is, there is like, like Polanski, that argument, like, oh, this is truly a, a work of art. Yeah. And, and that's how I come down as well on Midsummer. I thought it was beautiful and I look forward to seeing it show up on the Criterion channel. Oh uh, yeah. If ever, like to, to be honest with you, th- this is, like if I if I was if I worked for Criterion right now, I'd be moving heaven and earth to secure the rights to Hereditary, like two years from now when it lapses with whoever, or try and get some sort of uh, dealership to 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 handle some sort of special edition. And I would be desperately, frantically selling my soul to make sure that I get in Midsummer because, like everything, like this guy, like this guy has done more than enough for me to be a lifelong fan. Like, genuinely, those two movies back-to-back, he's done more than... This guy could decide to leave horror tomorrow and make, I don't know, a fucking... a fashion... <laughs> a fashion rom-com. I'll check out that fashion rom-com any fucking second. In oh, a sure. Because this guy has just got something about him that is super interesting on a slight and I'll be as quick as I possibly fucking can because I know we have two episodes of Too Old to Die Young I saw the new Peter Strickland movie I don't know if we've spoken about we haven't spoken about this I think you said you were going to see it last week uh, in Fabric uh, of course is the name of the film Um, I can't wait to see it but please uh, speak your piece it, like it's it's incredible. I fucking loved it. Peter Strickland to me is another guy who can do no fucking wrong. He has such a unique visual style and has a powerful seventies aesthetic. It has all the hallmarks of a Jallo without being a Jallo. Um, it has a bit of that kind of seventies uh, erotic kind of evocative sort of Jess Franco about it as well. It has great central performances. It's a wonderfully wicked story. Um, And it is a hugely captivating movie from start to finish. It's the sort of movie that you just lose yourself in when you watch it. And Strickland is another guy who just continues to prove to me that 
these guys are not getting mentioned in the same breaths as some of the, the, the other names in the horror genre, but they are making a style of cinema that I fucking love and they're doing it well. So yeah, as soon as it gets, as soon as it becomes available, Bo, get on it. I would love to do a review of In Fabric because I think me and you need to speak about In Fabric or at some point I would be totally 100% down with me, you, and a certain Douglas Tilly sitting down and doing the four movies by Peter Strickland. Oh yeah, uh, stuck on Strickland. That would be stuck the... That's exactly. Bo Ransdell, you should be a writer. I, you know, that's that's what people have told me not to do a number of times. <laughs> so I appreciate you being the outlier. Uh, all right, so I I can't wait to see that. Uh, one other note. Uh, you know, we were talk, uh, talking about comparing Ari Aster to um, Polanski, mm-hmm. and this made me feel smart because I feel like this might even be more close, or it, it felt that way to me, is uh, he reminds me of a Peter Weir. Ooh, that's good. Um, just There's something about his love of landscapes that strikes me as very Peter Weir. Um, see the see the shot early on when the car is driving along the road and then the drone shot goes upside down while it's driving. Yeah, um, is very Gaspar Noe as well. In fact, there's a bit of Gaspar Noe actually in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's there... fucking, there's a bit of Gaspar Noe. There's a bit of Lars von Trier as well. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's like the happier, optimistic Antichrist. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You could double bill those. You could double bill those two movies, and you, I mean, you you you'd feel horrible at the end of it. But you could double bill. You, I don't know. There's just so much. Ah, oh, spoon. Yeah, what time would be alive, Bo? I, you're not wrong, man. It, it like a movie like that kind of reinvigorates me, and mm-hmm. I've been kind of high on it ever since. Of, of just like, man, fucking Midsummer is. A movie you can go see in an actual movie theater, like not even an art house theater. I know how insane. Yeah, how insane. And I, I, I want to cast your memory back again about March time. Me and you had. I don't know if it was on one of our recordings, but me and you had a conversation. You were like, ah, "I just still feel like we've not had that that movie yet. That movie, the the kind of the witch or the you know the the get out or the it follows of this year. Well, boy, it has arrived. It's yeah. named it summer and welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'm glad to be here, uh, John. Um, <laughs> speaking of John McClane, mm-hmm. uh, too, l- too old to die hard. Let's yeah, let's get into uh, to smoke to be bacon <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> but it no it's too old to die hard the uh nicholas winning reffin uh series of of uh chapters to the, mm. uh, this longer work because it's clearly a thing yeah and it's only after these two episodes i suddenly realized that the episodes are named after tarot cards I I am glad you said that because only now do i realize that 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 is the case uh because yeah. i'm not very smart <laughs> But, I was I was like the names are really weird and I was like that oh yeah that's tarot cards oh yeah all right sure <laughs> so all right anyway j- volume three is called the hermit mm-hmm. and uh, as I alluded to earlier it opens the way every television show from here on out should open 
which is the empty socket of John Hawk's eye. Yep. And uh, then he, after we focus on that for a minute, he he puts in a fake eye. And we realize that uh, he is a one-eyed stranger of sorts. Yeah, a one-eyed hermit, one may say. Yes. And then we cut to um, <laughs> Gina Malone. Welcome yes. to the show, Gina Malone. Gina Malone is, uh, I love Gina Malone. Yeah, I, I do too. She's fantastic and she is amazing in this. She's fucking great. And she is, initially, it almost feels like it's voiceover. Yes. But w- what she's saying is, I want you to understand that this will not make you whole again. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that there is a an emotional process that, that the listener is going to undergo. Mm-hmm. And that once the door is open, that they're going to feel a need to confess. And she refers to it as radical self-healing. Yes. Which I really like. Mm-hmm. And she says, w- w- don't let what that man did to you define your lives. And as we are hearing her give this uh, this speech, we then see John Hawk wrap a, a bag around some <laughs> dude's head and he's trailer the guy's just come back with some groceries he's probably going to make himself a nice sandwich of some description it's probably he's probably been building up to he got he's got himself some salami he's got himself some turkey got himself some ham he's got some cheese to go in there right that, bit, that good mayonnaise he likes oh of course some some lettuce some pickles some tomatoes this is going to be the best this he's been working all day for this sandwich bowl and he's taken all the ingredients out and in the bag he brought to bring his sandwich gear in, goes over his head, and then he's <laughs> fucking asphyxiated. Yeah, yeah, and not the sexy kind neither. And <laughs> so, as that's happening, we cut back to Gina Malone, and she's talking to a couple who are sitting inside a fucking pyramid. I've got a healing crystal. <laughs> yeah, with a crystal hanging from the top. And then she says, very cult leader like, This isn't about money. But something of value needs to be exchanged here. Mm -hmm. Which is genius, by the way, for later on. We will talk about that. Yes. And so, anyway, so the wife takes all, and she's like, these are my mother's earrings. And she gives them to Gina Malone, who tells her, like, I'm very sorry for what you went through. Yeah. And then as she's telling them this, we see John Hawk. And we don't understand that these two things are incredibly related. Oh, yeah, straight away. (laughs) Uh, because what's happening, uh, spoilers, is that this couple has hired John Hawk via Jana Malone to murder this dude. Yeah, this dude who sexually molested and assaulted and crippled their son. Yes. So we see John Hawk stuffing this wrapped up body in his trunk. So it seems mm-hmm. like everything's going off without a he- hitch. Everything's going hawk. Oh man, Deputy Hawk back right riding again. Uh and kind of the same sort of awesome character. So Did I tell you that he's in a movie that I saw at Fright Fest? No, really. He's in a he's a, uh, it was a movie called Dead Ant. I'm sure it's changed names since. It's a horrible, I... cheesy movie. Yeah, I, I actually it's on the streaming services here in the states. 
John, uh, well, yeah, Hawk is in it, and he's fucking hilarious. So there you go. Get watch one, one reason to watch Dead End. I, I will. It's, it's a funny movie. You will laugh a lot. At it. Anyway, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. But yeah, he is fucking hilarious in it. All right. So our other uh, detective Hawk. <laughs> right. He's uh, driving around listening to a radio show about how humanity is running out of time. <laughs> He's driving around listening to that. Meanwhile, he is running out of time because the petrol is uh, on the on the out in the car. Yeah, so oh, the gas. Sorry, the gas. Sorry, we're Americans. The gas is running out. The gas is running. That's the American way to say it. This is true. They used to get something from the gas farm. Right. Big Ed's gas farm. Uh, but unfortunately, that's far away. And uh, and and so what he does is he just coasts the car into an alley. And he, he, so he's like, okay, well, I can just, I guess, dump the fucking body or something. Mm-hmm. But the bag starts to unravel that he's tied it up. And he's like, well, fuck, I can't dump the, the body with it all, you know, like coming apart right now mm-hmm. uh, in case somebody sees. So then he he gets back in the car to kind of regroup for a second. I'm just like, all right, everybody be cool. Let's <laughs> figure out what the fuck to do here. And he checks the glove box and he finds some smokes in there. And then he's very leisurely realizing that he's kind of fucked. Yeah. Because the car won't start. He's got a body in the trunk. And, you know, I guess he can't just leave it there. Well, if he can avoid leaving it there, then that might be a good idea. He could maybe pose it in a position that makes it look like it hasn't traveled to there, maybe? Perhaps, but what he ends up doing, though, is getting out of the car, <laughs> closing the door, and realize that he's locked himself out of the car. Yeah, no- nothing is coming up, Hawk. No. Caw. 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 Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> and he tries to he starts to try to break back into the car by elbowing it in but as he's doing that some gunshots go off which, where there's this unrelated argument which has now escalated into a, like a gang shooting mm-hmm. and so he takes cover and and just watches with his gun in hand while these two dudes like end up shooting the third that they were arguing with. Um, and then he makes a call. <laughs> He's like, Oh yeah. Time to call in the cavalry. And Gina Malone answers this phone call. And, mm-hmm. um, she says, you're early. And he's like, well, there were some complications, <laughs> which <laughs> is a bit of an understatement. And, <laughs> and then credits roll over the body in the trunk and now tying that story to one we've seen before in episode one mm-hmm. martin is on the scene now a detective yeah he's he's all grown no he's not growing up at all boy looks like somebody got murdered <laughs> the suit almost fits me i found it sense. in my dad's closet yeah, so he's he is now the detective, and we have um we have a police officer working our way around the car, taking all these photographs, and a guy standing at the end with some details that he's going to relay. Tell him, and of course, he's like, "What have we got here? 
Yeah. You know, he's, you know, he wishes he could spot like that. Uh, and he looks over, he obviously sees that there's been some other crime, and he's like, are these, do we think these are related? And uh, the, oh, the shitty cops, man, are fucking amazing. But like, well, no, that's a LAPD thing because that's their jurisdiction over the fence. Yeah, <laughs> like, other side of the fence is LAPD. We're counting. It's like so fucking shitty. It's like we have a series of dead bodies within spitting distance of each other. Could they be related? No, no, not happening. Um, and we found that he's now like our buddy here, our Miles Teller buddy, is has now picked up a seriously bad habit of spitting. It's a pet peeve of mine. I don't like it. Um, and he does it a lot in this episode. Mm-hmm. That's his new fucking cop tick. Spits and um, and he seems non plus by the whole thing. Once again, it's the kind of classic quiet man sort of approach. Um, these cops are not great, to be honest with you. Well, uh, they, they do give him the information that the dude was a sex offender. They pass that over, right? And he's and, like, oh, I guess it was a victimless crime then. Yeah. <laughs> but when he's like that, he's like, um, like someone reported the car stolen. He's like, could could the guy be involved? How did it sound? And the police officer's like, well, I don't think so. He, he's just really interested in getting his car back. And he's like, can you tell me where, where the... <laughs> so long these scenes but I love them he's like can you tell me where the car was stolen from so he gives him a bit of paper where he's obviously jotted the details down and Miles Teller looks at it for a bit a minute <laughs> yeah he's just like this is shit I can't exactly. read this at all but he gives it back to the cop that's taking the note and the cop can't read the eye right, so I think just... that's a three I don't know hey, that might be a nine <laughs> yeah yeah he's utter shit and <laughs> uh. Oh dear. So he goes to this parking lot and he finds out that the, like he what, finds out that they paved paradise book and and put up a parking lot. That's true. Strip. Joni Mitchell and <laughs> people are going to be like, "Fuck you, Bo." That's a Counting Crow song. <laughs> um, but he he's he finds out that this parking lot doesn't have uh close uh closed circuit cameras. Yeah, and they're a cash only business. They have no records. Yeah, the guy, the guy's the incredulity in this guy when he asks him if you know, he's like, "Do you not have? Do you so you don't know who comes in and out of here?" And he's like, "That it's a car lot." Oh my god! Right? <laughs> you mean to come out of here and come out of here? <laughs> Get the fuck out of here, crazy cop! Which causes Mel's Taylor to spit again. Yeah, and and so things are not going well in the investigation so far. Mm-mm. But then Duncan. We go to police headquarters. Yeah, and I'm so glad that we spent a bit of time, bit of time, Bo, mentioning Die Hard because, um, oh, the connection here made me happy. Man, it took me a second to figure out who this was, and then mm-hmm. once once it clicked, it was like, holy shit, he is perfect yeah. for this. Not only is he perfect for this, I don't think I've seen him in anything else. I, right. I can't think of it. Like, it was Die Hard in this. But we're, we're talking about Hart Bachner is yep. the guy's name. The The guy in Die Hard who uh, was, um, you know, hey, John Boy. That yeah. guy. That asshole. The cocaine. <laughs> the guy who, yeah, the guy who thinks he can play off Hans Gruber and John McLean against each other. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Ellis was his name in that. Ellis, tell him you don't know me. Hans he doesn't know what kind of man that you are, but I do. Don't fucking do this, Ellis. 
He and he is. Remember how excited we were last week when we were talking about Billy Baldwin's character, who, by the way, is back in this episode. So I'm a happy guy. Yeah. Remember how happy we were, Bo, about that, and we were like, "Oh yeah!" Every now and again, you just get a slice of gold. Yes. Um, it's like it's like. <laughs> it's almost as like Winden Refn was like that. I'm just going to keep creating these lynching characters, and he gives us the lieutenant. The lieutenant is fucking amazing, but it's not that. This whole police section, this whole police section of homicide detectives, are right out of the mind of David Lynch. Yeah, there, there's the fat dude named Phil, who's kind of flirting with some maybe sex line talking in french right so there's something weird going on there mm-hmm. we've got the lieutenant as played by hart bachner who is just a california dude he's coming out he's high-fiving but he's like yeah well done on the smith case you, right like you're, who's my fucking man <laughs> bumping fists and making it explode and shit <laughs> and then he comes to uh to martin and is new like guy. <laughs> the first time. yeah like new guy hey new guy um, yeah. and he's like, tell me, tell me what you're dealing with. And he, and he's like, well, there's this child molester who got shot and he goes, well, what happened to the kids? And, he, uh, Martin says, well, they were molested mm-hmm. and he goes, huh? Bummer. Yeah. It's like, he's real, <laughs> real, uh, one might say casual in his approach yeah. to, to police work. And he's kind of incredible too, but he, he actually, he's totally incredible. He's totally incredible because there's not many times a lieutenant in the LAPD will just spitball and drop the name Carl Jung as if it's nothing. Dude, <laughs> like, the, the best line in this whole episode is like, because he, he is, he's, he's like, <laughs> let me give you some philosophy. And he holds up a die, like a, 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 a dice, a single dice, and mm-hmm. uh, holds up a die. And he's like, um, you know what this is? This is what has made me a good cop. Yeah. And he says, like, life is chaos. And so when I don't know what to do or where to turn next, I assign all my options a number. I roll the dice and I let the universe decide and tap into what he refers to as Young's collective unconscious. Yes. And he says, Martin, do you know who Young is? And (laughs) Martin goes, "Uh, no, I don't believe I do. And he says... (laughs) It's Carl S. Young, but it's a longer conversation for a different day. Different beer and day, steaks. <laughs> and it's him saying, it's a longer conversation for a different day, beer and steaks. Yeah. And th- my next note was, I love him now. Yeah, I love, uh, yeah, who, who is this guy and how can I work for him? <laughs> right. And so then he gets a call, Martin gets a phone call uh, saying that there's um, a print on the key that they found in the car. That matches a former FBI agent named Vigo Larson. Yes, Vigo. And <laughs> can <they> help that? <laughs> Vigo the Carpathian. Uh, yes, the, as played yeah. by John Hawk. Yes. Ah, uh, yes. And how are you? And how is the baby? <laughs> <laughs> Just do that all the time from now yeah. on. And years gone by, I sat upon a throne of blood. <laughs> Sorry, John, John Hawk sits on a throne of blood in this. Movie. Yeah, of course, he fucking does. Um, 
But, you know, but it, we almost get into kind of some true detective shit at this point. Totally switches to the true detective style, which makes Duncan happy. Well, but because it's kind of a procedural, but there's also all this other weird shit going on that's kind of more of the point than the mystery itself. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, huh? Nicholas <laughs> Wind and Refn, are, are you trying to seduce me? <laughs> Oh, I do declare. Yeah, maybe a little. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you wanna. <laughs> if, maybe you want to jump in the Nicholas Wonder now, maybe. <laughs> know, maybe it's a tasty glass of that that <laughs> that wind and brew baker. Mm. Oh ref and Weissen and Yeah, ref yep. Mm. So Gina Malone shows up uh on the edge of a pond. Where <laughs> for, for the longest <laughs> this conversation and shot goes on so long that they walk up and down this pond three times. <laughs> I do think it's kind of cool that they're always kind of chasing each other in this scene. It's amazing. It's so well fucking shot. <laughs> it really is because it, there's a point. You're right. It's just like they'll they'll stop for a second, they'll talk, and then one of them will start, will start walking. And it's usually Hawk. Yeah. And. <laughs> And and he'll look behind him, and here comes Gina Malone for a little bit more. Yeah. And he's just like, all right, fucking all right, let's, we're having more conversation. But anyway, he has shown up to be like, look, we got a big fucking problem, because, th- you know, they found the body, and it could be a matter of a couple of minutes. Like, they're not going to let me know yeah. they're coming. They're yeah. just going to freeze all my shit, and then they're going to show up and lock me up. It's, it's a great thing that he says, listen, he goes, like, you know, if they're, she says, well, if, if they, let's say they do get a print of yours, how long will it take them to get hit? And he's like, five minutes. And yeah. all my assets will be seized right after that and all the rest. And he kind of he insinuates this point, or we get some more information about it, that his mother isn't well, and basically has some money set aside to put her in a care home. And uh, Gina Malone will facilitate that as part of their arrangement, uh, which she confirms. Uh, she confirms by becoming a mystic. <laughs> the path for you is clear. The future is bright. You know, like, all yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very much like she is his like spiritual counselor. In, it's in almost this. as if she should have a set of tarot cards in front of her bow. She should. She mm-hmm. should meet the high priestess of death. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I bet that happens. That's going to be anyway. Of course, it's going to like everything. All roads lead to the lead to something, and whatever it is, I can't wait to see it. I right. So basically, we set up that like Diana is Gina Malone's character's name, but Diana tells uh tells Hawk like, hey, I don't want you to freak out right now i don't think they're going to waste that much time pursuing a child molester yeah which is kind of the second time we've heard a character in in the show be like and eh, he was a child molester we don't have to spin our tires too much on this one mm-hmm. and speaking of we cut to martin who is on the case uh interviewing um the mother rebecca yeah and he's like so look we've got to do some routine stuff do you mind if i look into your bank accounts and she's like totally that look into whatever you want yeah because i didn't pay with money from a bank account i paid with e-rings right <laughs> you stupid cop fuck stupid the police cop. coming straight from the underground <laughs> <laughs> do you smell bacon yeah yeah hey do my ears seem a little naked pig <laughs> 
<laughs> Don't let the door hit you in your curly tail as you leave my house. Boy, you're giving me a lot of static. <laughs> I just asked if I could see some bake sandwich. Jeez, lady. Yeah, he lifts up, he lifts up the picture of Vigo and he says, have you seen this boy? His name is John Connor. No, it's like, have you, uh, do you know this guy? And she's like, nope. Who is he? And he's like, oh, no one of interest. And we're like, yeah, that's someone of interest. And then the little boy walk, walks in. Yeah. All crippled. And we're all like, oh, no, he's had bad things done to him. And he has a kind of similar conversation. Nothing's really going to come from this, though, because he's kind of... Martin has a very strong idea this is his guy, and he's just trying to feel out whether or not this family's involved. But what we find out very quickly is Martin's actually kind of a good cop. You know, like yeah. in the previous episodes, we were like that. How has he not pieced together this coke addict is selling him down the river? But turns out he's actually maybe made for homicide because he cracks his case from a fingerprint to to basically, well, the end of this episode, which is amazing. Um and a relatively short period of time without the use of a dice. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He's some good old-fashioned police work, and he finds out. He follows the clues, which, interestingly enough, the lieutenant kind of told him not to do. The lieutenant's like, that, listen, what will happen is you'll spend all this time scrutinising over clues, and you'll just find out some random idiot did it. And that's why I use the dice. That's the collective consciousness that he talks about. Uh, or the collective chaos, you know, this is how he does things. But no, Martin does some good old fashioned police work, and you know, it's led him here. He can't find anything to get purchase on this one, but he kind of knows who he's after, and he needs to get him sometimes some beagle. Right. It it doesn't feel like there. Th- this family hired Vigo, yeah. it, it, which is what he like. He believes Vigo is involved. He just wants to know who was the one behind Vigo. Yeah, who, who who was pulling the strings? Who yeah. paid for it? What happened? And there's kind of a telling moment where the mother says, because uh, he, he asked, like, hey, did you ever speak to this? The molester's name was Zach Thomas. He says, mm-hmm. did you ever speak to this guy Thomas again? And she says, no, we never spoke to him after we discovered what was happening. And she says, you know, people aren't what they seem to be, or they are what they seem to be, but there's something else, too. Mm-hmm. Something you don't get to see. And then we immediately cut to Vigo, who yep. is target shooting out in the middle of nowhere, like on his ranch with an old oh, lever action. Badass, man. <laughs> oh, like, this movie, like, this is what I love about Wind and Reffin, right? One of the many reasons I love about Wind and Reffin is he's just directed, he's just directed some scenes of neon splendor. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to throw some good old fashioned Wild West in here. And that's exactly what you get. And I've never been so interested in Nicholas Winden Refn doing a Western movie as much as I was from the five-minute scene we got here. I was like, someone give him money to make a Western. I would watch that movie. Yeah, well, because... So, um, Hawk just, like, shoots a bunch of bottles off a fence Mm -hmm. and then straight up gets on a horse and rides off. A white horse. Yeah. So he is sitting on a white horse. Who rode a white horse, Bo? Death. And what is the next scene? The next shot is a shot of a painting with four horses on it. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, Nicholas Winden and can I have your babies? Yep, yep. And then Vigo is talking to his mother, Eloise. Yeah, who appears to have maybe dementia or Alzheimer's. Something like that. Like, he's got a bunch of colored blocks and is working with her 
to try to like, hey, pick out the blue block blocks, and she doesn't quite get it right. Yeah, and it's Super very patient with her, though. Of yes, of course, like he is, he is a mother's son, uh, as we learn, and then we cut to uh, him getting dialysis. Yeah, in a miserable looking waiting room. While some kind of Hal Ashby movie plays in the background or something. Yeah. And it, it's this really dramatic contrast of like, here's this really silly, action-y movie playing and nothing else in the scene is moving. Yeah, the most mundane surroundings. Yeah, it's it's really striking. And then, Duncan, that's it. That's the whole scene because it's Nicholas Winding Refn. So, you know, some, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you just, you know, it, like, here's the thing. Um <laughs> <laughs> so Janie is uh standing bathed in red in front of uh uh a wall where they're like frame clothes and all kinds of shit and it turns out she's um at a bar asking for another drink. She's at a bar being served by a woman that we never see who's always slightly out of focus. Yes, it's a really interesting scene where there's a whole conversation between Janie and the bartender, because the bartender is like, hey, I'm I'm the new bartender. I came on. I didn't serve you the first one. Did he ask for your ID? And she's yep. like, I've already had a drink. And she's like, yeah, but you look underage. Mm-hmm. And um, Janie's like, you know, you're too late. I'm here already. I've already had a drink. And if you don't pour me another drink, I'm going to report the bar. Yeah. And the bartender does, because she's being blackmailed, essentially. And then um, the bartender is like, how old are you? And she says, I'm 22. Mm-hmm. And the bartender knows that's total bullshit. And she's, yeah. she says, you know, when I was your age, I could get anything that I wanted for free. Yeah. And Janie says, I'm surprised you remember that that far yeah, back. Such and, a bitchy teenager comment. Wow. And so the bartender kind of strolls off realizing that Janie doesn't want to be talked to. Yeah, it returns with a saucer of milk. Right. <laughs> saucer of milk, table three. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but as she as she walks away, she says, you know, things never work out like you think it will. Yeah. And what's interesting is the <laughs> like Janie produces her ID in front of her, says, Actually, I am seventeen, and I'll tell you why they are was they will work out for me. And she takes a big mass of water money out and puts it down in front of her and says, this is why it'll work out for me. Yeah. I'm rich. Yes. Oh man. Janie is just fucking stone cold in this scene. And then immediately is like, well, I'm done drinking and fucking with the, the low lives of Los Angeles. So it's time to go to this memorial. Let's <laughs> go to my mother's memorial. <laughs> Which is like it's an anniversary of her death. It's not like she she didn't just die or nothing. Yeah, but and the thing is though, when she said that though, I was like, the first time I saw the episode because I watched it twice now. But the first time I saw it, I was like, that Theo. Yeah, <laughs> she Theo, and then we walk into this very spacious gallery of sorts with this basically it's a series of kind of benches that are, are almost like a U shape with people sitting around them in groups of two. And Theo's in the middle, just talking up a storm, and I'm like, "That Theo, yay, yay!" Um, yeah, he is giving a very impassioned speech about uh, his former wife's art, which looks like 
if someone were doing a comic version of Mad Max. Yeah. And these are the characters that would be in there. And he's like, you know, I on my wife's behalf, I bought this gallery. And so this installation is going to be here uh, till mm -hmm. the end of the year. And then we're going to tour with it in Europe. And meanwhile, while that's gone, we're going to use this new space for uh, highlighting the, the, uh, the best young artists that Los Angeles are producing. Like my girlfriend over here. Am I right? Everybody. Yeah, yeah, my, my hot, my hot Asian girlfriend. Yeah. And he's just totally like, Hey, uh, all right, look, everybody, peace. Uh, I didn't bring any stuffed animals this week, so I'm just going to have a seat. Everybody, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for uh, watching me do my crazy shit. And now whoever wants to talk, doesn't, doesn't matter who it is, whoever wants to say something, now they can they can say something. And then there's this awkward silence where no one moves, and he basically looks at Janie and's like, get up there. Right, he's just like, go. Oh. And he's like waving her up and finally she gets up and she says, uh, you know, like she starts crying and talking about how she misses her mother and she, she ends with saying her mother shouldn't have left her. Yeah. And because as we know, the Theo has sort of whitewashed the events of the death and, and looks at it as an accident. He always describes it as she was in an accident Whitewashed with cocaine, lots and lots of cocaine. <laughs> piles of cocaine, and but Janie is was like I was in the car, like you know she she pulled into traffic. Yeah, he's he's whitewashed it with Scarface mungus amounts of cocaine with huge piles of yayo, <laughs> gank, toot snoot, clean burning propane. Yay! And so later. Martin is staring at her as she huddles by a wall in a room lit starkly in blue and red. Yeah, the bathed in neon. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he says, you know, you can stay with me tonight, but I've got to do something in the morning. Yeah, oh, this is amazing. And, and she says, what do you have to do in the morning? And he says, I got to follow a guy with one eye. She's like, what, like a pilot? And that's when you remember that she's just a ghetto. <laughs> right. But it, but he has this like really... Like a pirate, mister? <laughs> Uh, but he has a really funny line here where he's like, I don't know. It wasn't in his file. That's right. And it's, I'm like, oh, this guy's away. Yeah. And she kind of laughs at it. And she but he was, uh, he's like, he's, he, he just disappears. And she's like, that, what, like a ghost? And I'm like, oh, dear God almighty. This is the worst game of I Spy ever. Yeah. And, and he's like, oh, maybe. And she's like, is he dangerous? And he's like, oh, could be. <laughs> And then she says, well, how did you find him if he's all ghosty and disappeared? Uh, mm. And he says, because he's dying. Yeah. And then we see that, yes, Martin is staking out Vigo, mm -hmm. who he follows to this kind of nondescript place where Martin gets some, some photos of him. While yeah. inside, Vigo grabs a box full of guns, ammunition, and cash. Yeah, it's the greatest box ever. Uh-huh. It's like, like it's kind of a, a homespun John Wick box. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't have the coins. It just has cash there. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like a John Wick time capsule. <laughs> right, like if John Wick happened in the the days of Jesse James. <laughs> uh, but he they kill like, his horse. Yeah. 
instead of his dog. That horse was my one chance at happiness. I have to murder all of you. Um, Do you want your chaps evening? Uh, tactical. <laughs> tactical chaps. <laughs> if we named the episodes other than the show titles, Tactical Chaps would definitely be the name of the tactical episode. Tactical Chaps should be the name of our spinoff podcast. Yes. <laughs> just just uh, movies where somebody wears uh, clothes that have armor built yes. into them. Yeah, that's literally all we need. Yeah. Uh, so so he, 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 he removes or withdraws a large sum of money, which he puts in the brown envelope and goes to meet uh, Gina Malone. Mm-hmm. They meet in a car. Meanwhile, Martin's snappy snappy with the photographs, and now he's got a new lead, this Gina Malone woman, who he gets the, his colleagues to run a, a check on her license plate, finds out who she is, and finds out that she actually works for the police department. She works as an offshoot as a uh, kind of crisis and victim support counselor. Um, and you know what? He's going to go and pay her a visit. He does indeed. Although I, I gotta say, I one of the more interesting turns in this story so far, I think, mm-hmm. is the relationship between Diana and Vigo. Oh, it's, it's like because she she genuinely cares for him, and every time those two interact on the screen, have a conversation, I'm mesmerized. I think yeah. it's a great casting choice to just work really well off each other. Yeah, because he's so serious and matter of fact, and she's so. You know, into astrology, and she's weirdly level-headed considering her head's in the clouds, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well... It's very practical. Well, well, what does this mean? I'm sure we'll be fine with this. This is what we'll do. I'll take care of this. Don't you worry. And it's almost as if she knows, because he's dying, that the little stress and worry that she can put on him, you know, the better. Yes. And it, it... It's really fascinating, and there's also something I like about the idea that, like, hey, at the end, the reason he found her in the first place was that he went for healing yeah, because of his illness and then kind of fell under her sway to some degree. And it's yeah. really interesting. Anyway, so, yeah, so Martin goes to the office of Diana DeYoung, who is uh, Gina Malone's character, where she's on the phone, and when she sees him, she gives him that, like, I'm on the phone. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll wait. <laughs> and... uh <laughs> Then it turns out that she was the grief counselor, the the you know victim advocate, mm-hmm. uh, as appointed by the district attorney's office for the families of the Zach Thomas victims. Mm-hmm. And Martin's like, "So do you know that Zach Thomas is fucking dead, lady?" <laughs> and she's like, "I did not. I appreciate you notifying me, officer." And he goes, "Hmm, how you know Vigo?" And she's like, um, from my other practice, I do healing and different kinds of energy work, which is a, totally a thing uh, in Los Angeles, as uh, other places, I'm sure, but it's particularly a Los Angeles kind of bullshit job. And um, she gives him a card, and the name of her her practice is Healing the Hunter. Mm-hmm. And she says uh, she aims to get to the root of violence. And he's like, Huh, all right, well, hey, when did you last see Vigo? And she was like, well, I don't know. I'd have to look at my, my calendar and my records, and I don't have those here. Um, I don't know, uh, a while ago? And he go, he shows her a picture, and he's like, um, here's a picture of you and him yesterday. So, 
what the fuck lady <laughs> and then she she says officer what is this really all about mm-hmm. and he's like i want to know what he's like and she she says she thinks that Vigo is a man who is capable of greatness. Yeah. And then they kind of measure each other up a little bit. And then Martin is like, well, thanks for your time, lady. And then fucks off. Yep. And, and she's like, oh, shit. Right. So he like she immediately calls Vigo, who's out on his farm. And um she's like hey i just met with this dude martin he knows everything and vigo says i'll uh i'll i'll keep you safe and then he hangs up and diana alone in this hallway next to a payphone starts like freaking out a little bit and then she starts grinning and then she laughs mm-hmm. as if she it's is like um, a mal- kind of maniacal laugh as well right but it, it it seems as though she has come to some realization that we perhaps are not aware of yet. Mm-hmm. That was my read, anyway. Yeah, it's, it's, once again, it's this sort of kind of she is she's kind of mystical, if you know what I mean. So there's a bit of that sort of does she has she foreseen something, if you know what I mean, or does she know how this is going to play out, or does she think that he's going to take care of business anyway, or? What does that mean? You know, what? Like, why is she laughing? It's so weird. It's one of those weird jarring things. And once again, Wyndham Reffin's like, yeah, finish with this scene. Yeah, done. Moving on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so speaking of moving on, uh, Martin is, comes home and is uh, looking down at Janie, still in his bed. She is nude, but tastefully covered by the uh, the sheets. And yep. while, while she's asleep, he... Uh, decides to go meet uh, Celestino and uh, he says, well, Damien is out, but Celestino ends up giving him some money and says, Hey, he's at this strip mall waiting for you. Mm. And when he shows up, Damien is kind of preoccupied because he gave his daughter her first cell phone and now she won't stop texting him. And Martin says, why don't you just tell her you're busy? And Damien says, I'm not going to lie to her. And it's like, man, sick burn on Martin. Yeah. <laughs> Damien dropping bombs over here. Hey, man, what the fuck? <laughs> I thought we were friends. And then he gets uh, Martin to take a picture of him to text to his daughter. Yeah, which once again, he's there because he knows he's been summoned to kill someone. And like, meanwhile, Damien's like, go and take a photo so I can send it to my daughter. Right. And so Damien ultimately hands him a key and uh, uh, Martin is like, what about the alarm system? I'm not getting pinched for this shit, right? And he's like, no, 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 the alarm system's taken care of. And he's like, wow, this is a real nice neighborhood. What did she do? And Damien's like, it's complicated. All I need you to do is take this syringe and inject her with it, and she'll be gone in seven yeah. seconds. Which Gone in seven seconds. Such a cool thing to say. Yeah. Also, my favorite Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah, Gone in seven seconds. Uh-huh. It was exciting. It was way better than Gone in 60 seconds. That took forever. <laughs> It was sure, yeah. Yeah, Gone in 7 Seconds is uh, almost a tenth uh, 
of the time. Um, I can't do the math, that math that fast. So <laughs> Martin does, in fact, sneak into this fancy schmancy house, and he finds a woman uh, asleep in a recliner, and uh, she's watching some exploitation movie on television. Mm-hmm. And that is important because he injects her in the neck and just as advertised, she dies real fast. Mm-hmm. But Martin starts snooping around the house and discovers a bedroom where two children are asleep. And as soon as he sees these two children, we hear a woman in this movie scream. Yeah. And then we cut very quickly to Vigo, who wakes up in the middle of the night to be sick. Yeah. And uh, anyway, then the next day he loads up a revolver because, again, you know, Vigo's a wanted man at this point. He knows that, hey, my if they get prints on me, at some point they're going to come. And he mm-hmm. he is behaving like a man who does not feel like getting taken to prison. Yeah, I, I don't think... He's going to go, we'll Yeah. So there's a point where uh, he steps out. He, he's gone to the dialysis uh, place, but he's not in the chair yet. And he gets out of the waiting room and he's stepping outside. And Martin is kind of waiting for him around the corner. Mm-hmm. And when he goes by, Martin's like, hey, you're Vigo. And Vigo reaches inside his jacket and just puts his hand on the revolver. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hey, who's asking? And Martin says, hey, I'm not here to arrest you. I just want to <laughs> talk to you. There's a diner around the corner, and it's a lot like heat if you follow me there. And so he... he <laughs> like heat if you follow me there. So he goes to the diner, and Vigo goes back to his truck. And it looks like he's about to take off, like he's about to fly. And then he stops, and then, of course, he goes to this diner. And they're sitting there kind of quietly, and Martin confesses the murder of this lady. But he's... It's, yeah, it's not just the confession of the murder of the lady. It's the fact that he then walked around... And then just walked around her house and then just stood over looking at our children who were asleep and he didn't feel a thing at all. Yeah. He says, I felt, and Vigo finishes the line and he says, empty. And, um, well, he asks Vigo if he feels the same when he does the killing as if I'm going to find a kindred spirit and Vigo's like, nope. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, he's, I know that is certainly not how I feel. I'm not a psychopath. <laughs> Piece of shit. Um, I, right. I'm trying to make the world a better place in my own fucked up way. Yeah. And yeah, I don't Who's know. Who's policing the police, bull? Who's policing the police? Oh, shit. Getting deep. Um, <laughs> so, but Vigo is like, hey, how old are you? And he's like, I'm 30. And he's, <laughs> and like, he's like, they're no. Yeah. Certainly yeah, come not. Again. <laughs> uh, but, but he's like, hey. Of course you are. <laughs> but he's like, hey, oh, honey, when I was your age, I, I could get anything for free <laughs> yeah. i can too let me show you my big cock <laughs> i don't that's probably not true i don't know uh yeah who's to say i'm not gonna impugn the good name of miles teller he could be i don't know packing a hog we don't know um i mean he's not giving it to us the way that say your harvey Keitels might 
This is true. Well, yet. Yet, yet. He is, right. a, he is on a wind and reffing show, so anything can happen. You're absolutely correct. We may see his dick before uh, the the end of this run. Yeah, well, uh, he's already wrestled a, a naked Asian man. Yeah, and that should count. Mm-hmm. Um, you're at least, you know, Eskimo brothers, kind of. So, anyway, uh, it, I'm sure that's a, a term that they have in Scotland, Eskimo brothers. Of course. Yeah, it's where you sleep with the same woman uh, as a friend of yours. I've literally never heard of that. Oh, yeah. it's what, Yeah, Eskimo Brothers is when you you fuck the same person. It's not polite. Um, no, I, 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 yeah, I, I got the feeling that it may not be. <laughs> right. But Vico is like, hey, if you're 30 and already working homicide, that's that's pretty good. And there's this moment where he's like, hey, is uh, Phil Duncan still working down there? And Martin's like, I don't know who the fuck that is. And he's like, yeah, it's been a while. Uh, and there's a, a moment where Vico checks his watch and Martin says, what, you got something to do? And uh, Vigo's like, no, actually, what about you? And Martin's like, nope. (laughs) And then they sit quietly. And and silence. (laughs) Until the credits roll. But I thought it was kind of interesting that Vigo has a cup of of coffee in front of him, but Martin has nothing. That he's already, like, he's the one who is kind of, he's the ghost. Yeah. You know? That even though he's in in his life, he's barely in a life, and Vigo is much more connected yeah. to the world around him. Of course, he is. Yeah, but that's that's Wind and Reffin's heroes, isn't it? Yeah, or or maybe not even heroes is a strong word. That's it's your it's the, the <laughs> a character main character. You, yeah, it's the character you follow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whether it's good or bad, um, that's and he will take a, a bit of a twist in the next episode, but. Um, so yeah, we're getting like this episode. We're getting down to some serious storytelling. Yeah, we're much deeper into the story with uh, this uh, sort of uh, you know buddy cop movie uh, that it, it has become with with uh, Vigo and um, Martin is really yeah. interesting. The one and we'll thing- jump forward a couple. We know that we're forward a couple of months because he says he's been in homicide a couple of months. So we're we're like time has moved on since the last time we saw him yes yes for sure and like the the relationship with Janie has progressed like we're gonna see in the next episode that like there there seems to be at least some sort of acceptance from theo about all that mm-hmm. and yeah and the thing i like about this point is first of all like the introduction of gina malone and and john hawk yeah. are like both those characters are really interesting and i want to know more about them and I I was disappointed because we don't get any high priestess of death in this run. Yeah. But I think yeah, but at the same time I'm thinking to myself this is this is a mar- this is a marathon not a sprint, right? You know what I mean? That episode was what an hour and 20 minutes long. Again, that was another, or maybe an hour and 13, 15 or something like that. So it's another long episode. The episode that comes next is just about an hour long. So, you know, like we are, we're, we've had a whole episode of spending time with um, uh, Jesus and High Priestess of Death and all the rest. And we filled out that story to a point that we can leave them for a little while. And now we've returned several months on. Damien doesn't seem to be... I mean, we're in a situation now that not only is Martin now a detective, um, but he is working for Damien. He's his hitman, essentially. He's um, 
he's out doing contract killings for him. And so he succumbed to that part, and he, that you know that's part of his his role. And Damien doesn't appear to be riding him for you know the death of Jesus at the moment. Certainly isn't mentioned. Right. So there's that aspect, but to me that's cool. We can leave that to the side just now because what you're doing is you're it's this show is world building to me, and that's what I really like about it is we're introducing new characters, but we're I don't feel we're introducing new characters for the sake of introducing them. We've introduced two what I think will be prominent characters for the next little while anyway. I think like especially Hawk's introduction here is going to, as we're going to see in the next episode, it's going to shape Martin as a character profoundly, uh, while Gina Malone's character, once again, is this weird kind of guiding light for for Hawk as a character as well. And whilst we're not necessarily looking at the cartel stuff, we are going to get the introduction of the third prong um, of the trifecta of promises that Wyndon Refn told us we would get from this show. He said we would get cartel, he said we would get police, and he said we would get Yakuza. And um, so we're going to get an introduction to a whole new host of things, which at four episodes of a, what, ten-episode season, we're not even at the halfway point yet, you have teased the High Priestess of death to me. I love that tease. I want to spend more time with that character, but I don't want her in every episode because the mystique just now is what's... The the fact that we're both clambering for more of her just means the show's doing the right thing. Um, I don't think we're going to have to wait. I've not went beyond episode four, but I really don't think we're going to have that long to wait before we start dealing with the cartel again and specifically her character. I'm very much looking forward to it, but we are going to get teased some more new characters and... A weird path in this show that I did not expect that I found myself like really interested in. Like Martin as a character is is now like before we're like he's a piece of shit and all the rest. I'm not necessarily thinking he's removed himself from being a piece of shit, but he's he's got a weird moral backbone, which we're gonna find in this episode, which are a purpose that he's now got, which makes him more endearing to me as a character. Yeah, I don't know that I would make the argument that I think it's borrowed morality, but it's something. It's borrowed morality because I think he has, weirdly, that's a midsummer thing. He's found someone that he thinks he can relate to. Like, Martin's so empty that I think the first thing that's come across for him to kind of latch onto, which allows him to do what he wants to do, which is clearly continue killing, but to justify it in some sort of weird purpose. It's the Dexter thing, isn't it? You know, it's like Dexter is a serial killer who needs to kill people, but he just so happens to do it to criminals as this weird morality of, if I do that, then I'm helping. You know what I mean? So it's it's, it's interesting how they're setting it all out. But yeah, I like I, once again we some of the best shot sequences in this episode. Cliff Martinus's soundtrack is fucking the tits. Um, introduction at the lieutenant, maybe one of my new favorite characters, and that's only going to get better in the episode coming up. I can't fucking wait uh, to talk about the yuke, 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 yuke. Man, yeah. All right, let, let's get into this episode because shit gets weird. So weird. It makes me so happy. Um. So what? Uh, w- w- the the 
what fourth episode now yeah fourth episode yeah, episode number four and we are pushing almost four hours of this show by yeah time we reached the fourth episode which is fucking nuts so this one entitled the tower mm-hmm. uh same bona, bona fides uh written and directed by uh winnie reffin um we open on martin j- just staring out a window like uh it knows it's a noir story mm-hmm. and uh janie is in bed and are sitting on the bed and asks him to look at her and asks if he likes what uh, he sees. Mm-hmm. And Martin just circles her, doesn't say a word, because he's playing this one just right, Duncan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Circling her slow, getting sexy. And then he kind of steps back into the shadows, while Janie kind of slowly undresses for him. Mm-hmm. And then... You may be surprised to learn, Duncan, Martin sinks to the floor and crawls to her. Yeah. It's it's a super weird scene. Mm-hmm. And anyway, we cut from that bit of seduction to a shot of the movie Night Tide, uh, a, a Winding Refn favorite, mm-hmm. uh, which is the Dennis Hopper and a Mermaid movie. Uh, which is is pretty fun, and so this dude is watching Night Tide in his hotel room or something, and he gets a knock at the door. Gets up, he opens the door, and it's immediately shot in the fucking face by Martin. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is it it is a quick response. Mm-hmm. It's just bang bang. Anyway, so. Cut from that to a group therapy session. <laughs> group therapy session for killers? Well, <laughs> yeah, this ain't Monster Party, Duncan. No, it, yeah. it's a bunch of people who are there for, like, P- PTSD. And there's this dude named Greg who is telling a story about being a cop and going up to this car and seeing somebody in the back seat or somebody try to pull a gun or so he believes and he starts shooting and there's a girl in the back seat that he never sees that he ends up killing and it's one of those reffin shots where it's just the camera slowly circling yeah this scene and we see that as this guy's telling the story Vigo is there martin is there and the this guy greg uh, finishes up his story about how like his whole life is fucking ruined and he's <laughs> suicidal and then everybody claps for greg yeah and Clap for greg <laughs> yeah yay greg you're really <laughs> like and and this is kind of the trick that Reffin pulls in the in the scene is like you kind of feel bad for this poor guy greg you should totally feel bad for this poor guy greg did you not hear his story bro it was heartbreaking uh duncan and you know me i'm a soft touch i was crying like a little girl like a little Niagara Falls, Frankie. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a bone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's the fucking best in that movie. It's a bone, you stupid dog. Oh, uh, anyway. <laughs> So after like they they kind of break up the meeting the the head of the meeting 
um, or the organizer or whatever comes over and addresses Vigo, but calls Vigo George. Mm-hmm. And Vigo is like, hey, this is my friend. Uh, he's coming with me. And thinking quick, because I don't think Martin was totally prepared for this. Oh, of course not. But Martin is like, oh, my name is uh, Mike. Yeah, Mike. And Mike Schumann. Mike Schumannson. <laughs> and <laughs> he's looking for Mike Street Sane. That's my name. My, my name's Mike Chair. My name's Mike Guy. Yeah, my, my name's Mike Cock. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Cock. The host is, is like, hey, uh, next time you should in, invite, uh, or uh, next time you should uh, share something. And Mike's like, yeah, sure. Um, and then he, he invites him to a bar. And Vigo is like, no, 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 we, we got to be somewhere. And then outside this meeting, Vigo tells Martin that this dude, Greg, that we heard this sob story from, has been molesting his daughter for a number of years. Yeah, quite a few, quite a few. And, um, and told her the icing on this particular hideous cake is that uh, the, the Greg told his daughter, if you tell anybody, I'll kill your mother. Yeah, kill the mother. Right. And Martin's like, well, start the fucking car. Let's get this. <laughs> and uh, Sounds like a sort of thing that Mike Cock would want to fix. Right. It, so Martin, uh, or Vigo is just like, you know what? Just keep the car running. I'll be back in two shakes of a lamb's tail. <laughs> we don't have to. I'll just, I'll do it right now, motherfucker. Right. Well, we, we ain't got to go nowhere. You know, George did this as far as they can tell. So he just goes up to Greg's car and Greg's like, Hey man, it was nice to see you at the meeting again. And Vigo's like, yeah, sure was. Now stab, 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 motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> and stabs him in the fucking throat. That's so rad. And, <laughs> and then just casually gets back in, in uh, the car with Martin and they take off. There's an, this is amazing because he stabs him in the throat and we get a shot from the other side of the car. Um, and the the way it's shot, obviously, uh, Greg turns his head, so we get the arterial spray of blood that would come out your throat that sprays over the other window and obscures the camera angle. That's fucking amazing. It's pretty good. It is pretty good. And then we have uh, Vigo starts, uh, like, they're listening to the radio, and, and it's the, the talk radio stuff that Vigo's always listening to, where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, we're about to go back to the Dark Ages. You know what that means? It means barbarian hordes. And Vigo just starts laying down some philosophy on Martin. It's one of my favorite lines here. He says, as the world fractures, someone, someone has to be there to protect innocence. And I'm like, yes, Hawk will be there to protect the innocence. Kaka indeed. Yeah. Kaka ha ha. And, but it's, it's this shit where he's like, society has evolved to the point that we have become psychotic mm-hmm. and that like we live in a world where nobody you don't have to fend for yourself and you have this violent nature and so the pack starts providing for people and so they abandon that violent nature and they become the, the way he puts it is they become slaves to the system that they built mm-hmm. and those systems are going to collapse and when that happens they're going to be unprepared for it 
And Vigo is like, I like you, Martin, because you're not blind to this anymore. You mm-hmm. see this the way I see it. And yeah. he also reveals that when he was in the FBI, he got shot in the fucking head, which is why he doesn't have an eye. It's why he doesn't have an eye, both. <laughs> yeah, he says he died for three minutes. And he <laughs> says, when I came back, everything was clear. And when you hear somebody say that, fucking run duncan when they're like i came back from the other side and everything is crystal clear now yeah and this is the (laughs) right (laughs) and that's the point where he says the shit about like as the world fractures someone has to be there to protect innocence oh such a good line oh yeah it's awesome and then we we leave that to go to another awesome scene Mm-hmm. So Which, many in this episode. It, it it's really good. It's one of the shortest, and there's a lot of shit that happens in kind of mm-hmm. rapid fire. Yeah. So we go to Vigo in the Crystal Pyramid. Yeah. <laughs> where Diana is talking to him, and she's asking him, like, "Do you trust Martin?" And he says he that he does. Mm-hmm. And Diana says, "I see wonderful things in him." A new breed of destruction. Yeah. Violence cloaked in creation. Yeah. And she's... If you didn't get a fucking hard on hearing her say that, I don't know what will get you up there. (laughs) She says, we must be cautious of his hunger. It's, I mean... (sighs) Right. It's fucking awesome. And then she says, uh, choose a stone. And he picks one up and she's like, nope, not that one. (laughs) That's the wrong stone. Uh, weirdly, weirdly, when you think about it, think about it, think about it, but what's it mirroring? What's a what? What's it mirroring? Mirroring? Yeah. Oh, I didn't understand your language. Yeah, uh, what's it mirroring? Well, uh, it, it's the scene with the couple from earlier. What's the scene with his mum picking up? The oh, right. You're right. Shit. Once I again, when then ripping, doing his shit. It's not all pretty pictures, Bo. It's not all pretty pictures in neon lights. It can be. It can't, it can't, well, yeah, my dream says. Um, uh, but yeah, no, you're right. he, he, there's a parallel that I really enjoy when he does a little bit of synchronicity between his characters. Like, yeah. Like, all right. That's very cool. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm on board. And then, but after she's like, no, that, that's the wrong one, dummy. Um, he picks another stone and she's like, all right, this will do. This is this guy named Finnegan who works as a track coach who molested a bunch of kids. Mm-hmm. And she, she says, the one thing I ask you here, don't kill him at the school. And uh, why would you? You wouldn't want to. Right. Vigo's like, I got it. Don't worry. Don't, don't sweat the school. I got this. I'm, yeah. a, I'm I, a professional. I'm a, I'm, a pro, I'm a pro. Kill him at the school. That's what we said. Um, Oh, take care of. Don't worry. Right at the school door. In the gymnasium. Where the kids go. Right in the old school door. (laughs) Right in the old school door. Get a squeaky (laughs) duck right in the old school door. Yeah, give me a second. I'll find my tactical chaps. Duncan, let's go to the police. Yep. Oh, yeah, because the police are serious. They'll be solving murders and crime. Well, or giving a TGIF speech, as the lieutenant is doing. Like, see if I worked at a place where we celebrated Fridays like this, I would be a happy man, bro. Well, and he's like, I got a, I got a little surprise for everybody today. And immediately <laughs> people are like, Yuke, 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 Yuke. And I'm like that. Yuke is short for ukulele. And why has he got a strap on him? I'm like that. 
He's going to play the fucking ukulele. And people are losing their fucking minds for this. This is this is Wolf of Wall Street level of fucking, oh, 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 you know, like yeah. everyone's just, this is Matthew McConaughey banging his jet, chest, telling him to be the fucking tiger, be the tiger ball. Well, then, then there's this super weird moment where uh, the lieutenant is like, all right, all right, knuckleheads, before we get into ukulele fun, we have to have yep. a moment of silence for... And the way he does it, I'm going to kind of emulate it's so, it. Yeah, he goes campy. Yeah, he goes, people who are called to a higher purpose. Yep. And then everybody like <laughs> has this crazy moment of silence. Mm-hmm. And then he says, Duncan, all right, and now give me an F. F. Give me an A. A. Give me an S. S. Give me a C. C. Give me an ism. What? And he's like, that's what's that spell? That spells fascism? And then they're like, fucking fascism! And yes. they all start chanting fascism. And the guy in the front starts doing white power. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking nuts. It, uh, again, one of those moments that's like, oh, this is just Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's, it's the most Twin Peaksy Twin Peaks thing I've seen outside the Twin Peaks along beside the tiger because the, the guy's doing white power and he's sitting beside a black woman who's also losing her shit shouting about fascism. And and then the the scene weirds it up a little more. Yeah, like, how do we top this? <laughs> because he's like, okay, now it's time for the ukulele. You guys have been good. Yeah. So it's ukulele time. And here's an original called Baby Jane's Closet. <laughs> Which is mother rock. <laughs> right and he, so the lieutenant is playing the ukulele and he's just like mary ukulele 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 joseph ukulele 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 baby jesus it's so bizarre and then he finishes everyone applauds and loses their shit about that mm-hmm. and martin meanwhile looks completely out of place he looks. He, he looks like you know. Like I kill people, and that should that I should be prepared for anything now. I am a fucking stone cold killer, and yet this troubles me. Right. I don't understand what anyone is doing here, and I'm just going with it, kind of. Mm-hmm. And so he gets a call at his desk, and it's somebody saying, "Hey, a guy named George Jenkins <laughs> is here to see you," and he's like, "Who the fuck is George Jenkins?" And he's like, I don't know. He says he's here about some ducks being shot. Yeah. And he's like, oh, be right there. <laughs> and goes to the lobby where he, of course, finds Vigo, who used the name George just uh, in a couple of scenes before. Yeah, George Duckman. George George Duck Murderman. <laughs> duck Killman. Kill Duck. George Kill Duck. George, George Dead Duck. Vigo is like, Hey, can you you take a drive? You want you want to get out of here? Blow this popsicle stand? Mm. And Martin's like, "Yeah, those assholes upstairs are weird as fuck. Uh, <laughs> I'll meet you out front." <laughs> and before he goes, though, Martin gets called into an office by Phil, who is like mm. just the weirdo that was on the sex line earlier. And he's like, "Hey, we're gonna prank the lieutenant. He's got uh, an interview." with this dude that we came up with a fake <laughs> resume for and it's just a mannequin and yeah a mannequin like, in drag in drag right 
And uh, they're like, hey, you want to help us get this all put together? And he's like, fuck no. And they're like, what do you think of this? And he's like, ah, it's funny. Anyway, I got to bail. And so he does. And again, it's it's just a weird little detail thrown into the scene. Mm-hmm. And then as I'm he, applauding all of this, by the way, the more he does it, this, the more happy I am with this shit. A hundred percent. I'm having a great time. Don't get me wrong. And as he leaves, though, the the guy that called him down to meet this guy, George, uh, is like, hey, are you going to take a look at the ducks? And he's like, oh, yeah. And he's like, so what's up with those ducks? And he goes, oh, the ducks are dead. <laughs> And it's this hilarious conversation that takes place as he's just walking through the lobby that I really like. That's brilliant. Anyway, he drives with uh, Vigo to the house of this dude, Finnegan. This is fucking amazing. And Hawk... uh, (laughs) Oh, man. He grabs a golf club. Mm Mm-hmm. And finds this guy just hitting golf balls off of, you know, kind of the the space by his pool. (laughs) Like, knocking balls down the the Hollywood Hills. Mm -hmm. And Vigo just fucking clocks him in the skull with a golf club. He fucking happy Gilmore's him in the side of the head. He does. And he just goes face first into the pool. And Vigo's just like, (laughs) done and done. I'm off. It's it's re- like There's it happened so, so fast. much death. There's so much death in this episode. It's fucking awesome. And so Vigo, and, and we still haven't gotten to the coolest thing that happens in this episode. Mm-hmm. So Vigo uh, later is doing some dishes and listening to some more talk radio, and then he hears something outside. He hears like his horses. Goes outside and finds his mother out there. Yeah, and he's like, "You're supposed to tell me if you're taking a walk, mom." And and she's just there. I'm out here with the horses because she's, you know, crazy. And then there's a nice little moment. It's really, again, one of those refing moments that's just like, you know, here is a shot. You will like it. <laughs> and it's Diana and Vigo at the dialysis center as he's yeah. getting treatment. And she just like reaches over and takes his hand. And that's yeah. kind of the whole moment. But it's a really nice moment where you do see that Diana is, in fact, very protective of him and, and mm-hmm. cares about him. And then we have a scene where Martin is at a murder scene. Yeah, quite a vicious murder scene. <laughs> yeah. And Janie calls. And he... Uh, and, so weird, this bit. So weird. And he picks up. And he's like, oh, what's up? And she's like, hey, I just got back from school. I'm doing some homework. And, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, hang right. the <laughs> None of this is good. And, uh, and he, he, she says, I need an adjective. And uh, he says, what about fucking stabbed? <laughs> and she's like, mm, stabbed is good. Can you spell it? Yeah. S-T-A fucking stabbed. <laughs> and she's, she's like, oh. I, that you're really smart, but I gotta go because my dad's calling and he's hilarious. I, I just want to share for a second here. Martin's voice is starting to slowly drift into the Dean territory here. I'm just letting you know it's here. There's a certain cadence about it that's giving me the giving me the shivers. Right, I'm just saying, bring it back a lot. All right, know? all right. Sorry, you got to build into it, Bo. Build it. You can't just be dropping it. 
I, you're right. You're right. Also, <laughs> my my throat will just stop working at a certain yeah, point we, the more I do. It. <laughs> um. So. Anyway, Theo calls Janie into the dining room. And I'm like, Theo's in this episode again? Cha-ching! Right. We're all a winner. And he uh, is like, hey, here's a, another envelope from a college. <laughs> and Wiping she, off the coke residue. <laughs> right. I was just doing a quick line off of uh, your acceptance letter to Harvard. <laughs> yeah. And so apparently she's been getting acceptance letters from every college she's applied to. Mm-hmm. And she's like, just don't ask me what I want to do, dad. I just don't know yet. And he's like, uh, I've got a fucking idea. How and about this idea is amazing. Cause I would take this up in a thing. No kidding. He's like, Hey, the way he describes it, he's like, you going to college would be a step backwards because she's already, she, he's like, you know, you were walking the red carpet of can when you were 13 and, you had an op-ed published in the New Yorker at 15 and like, mm-hmm. you know, you have all these ideas and dreams. And I'm, I don't know if I told you this, I'm sitting on a shit ton of money and cocaine. You know, basically what he basically says, he, he says, you know, like I have hundreds of millions to play with. And he, he leans into the fact you've got this great, like dangerous and imaginative mind. And you know, with your mind and your ability to think things, and my money backing you. I'm not looking for you to come work for me. I'm looking for a partner. With that, we can rule the world. And I'm like that, rule the world. Rule the world with your father, Theo. <laughs> please, please, please. Um, and she's like, I don't know. And this conversation builds up, and then he's like, listen, I'll take you out to dinner. We'll talk about some more. And she's like, can we get takeout food? And he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And I'm like that. Like, feels weirdly intense. So much so that he remember he tried to buy Martin's life, (laughs) right? Well, but he's coked to the gills. That's why he's so intense. He's so out his face. But we lean back in this idea of he's like that. Your mum always said that you know you 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 should get everything that you want. You should you should be given everything you want. And she leans back in this idea, except her idea that she was taken away too soon from her uh, and whatnot. And he's like, yeah, me too, pretty much. And it's it's. I'm still not sure what's going on with Theo. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I don't know that his motives are any less pure than the cocaine that he's doing, Duncan. Yeah, but, no. I, but yeah, but I don't know what like I don't know what his end game is here. Do you think he's trying to pivot away to break up him and her and Martin now by saying, "Listen, I can whisk you away somewhere, and we can do all this stuff, and you know, we could go anywhere and do anything, be anything." Oh, by the way, remember your boyfriend's a cop who can't. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of, of him saying, like, you are one of, you know, the rich and powerful. Yeah. So, you know, like, I, I don't think he he's trying to break them up. Like, he does say a thing about, like, you know, well, I guess you two probably don't talk that much. Yeah. You know, being young and all. And, and she's like, oh, Dad, you're gross. And he's like, hey, I'm your father. But, like, he's not a traditional father, so yeah. it, they, like when she crawls in his lap and it's like i love you daddy it's like eh, you're a little too old for that mm-hmm. and he should also not be cool with it but i i i don't know like the the fluidity of sexuality with theo is probably you know david Bowieian, mm-hmm. um and, and it's uh <laughs> adventures across the spectrum so <laughs> yeah. i yeah i just i i don't know exactly i don't know that he's a 
bad guy. I think he's a very frivolous guy. Mm. And I just don't know that. I, I I think you're right. I think there's certainly an element of like, let me get my daughter away from this stupid cop. Yeah. But I don't know that he, it's that well calculated. Yeah. I, yeah. It's like, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I want to see how this plays out. Cause I, sure. is there, is their relationship going to really last the test of time when she's keep saying things like, you know, I've just finished school and I'm doing my homework. You know what I mean? It's kind of icky. Right. Plus, and like, he's, he's walking, he's walking around with a guy who's killing people that touch kids. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's the other thing is like, what does Vigo think about his underage girlfriend? You know? Yeah. Um, it, like, I, I guess, I, I don't know. I mean, cause you get into these awful questions of like, well, she's 17 and it's consensual and her father knows about it. And is it really a crime in that scenario or is it just creepy or mm-hmm. anyway? Who knows? In I, in Alabama, this would actually make them the most classy couple in town. <laughs> uh, but so pot shots at Alabama, I love it both. Cross the bow, they'll never know. They can't <laughs> get the internet down there. Um, so Martin uh, meets Celestino, and he's like, "Hey, stay me around." He's like, "No, but here's a picture of a dude that you need to kill." <laughs> and it's not, the boy. it's not what I asked you. Um, Right, yeah, it wasn't even close. Uh, but Martin uh, fucks off for a minute. And then we we cut to, like, we see Celestino and Damien first, and they're at the, the ice skating rink. Mm. And they're watching this girl ice skate, and she goes down hard, and the music's... <laughs> yeah, she goes down really out. She fucking eats it. And the music stops, and Celestino's like, should we go help her? And Damien's like, nope. And uh, she gets up and skates off, and Damien just goes, it's a cruel world out there. Like, mm. she needs to learn this lesson now sort of thing. Yeah. Ugh. And so Martin comes in, and uh, they're like, hey, what the fuck are you doing here? And he's like, oh, just stopping by. Um, <laughs> hey, what did this Korean guy do anyway? Mm-hmm. And they're like, lots of bad stuff. What the fuck does it matter? Just go kill him. And Damien explicitly says, like, I don't have time to explain everything to you. You're an employee. Yeah. I point, you kill. Right. And so Martin's like, all right. And goes to to find the guy who's just buying some food at, at like, this uh, bodega kind of thing. And Martin follows him, pulls up beside him in traffic. Mm-hmm. aims like rolls down his when the window of uh his passenger seat aims the the gun out the window at this dude who is eating a cheeseburger and is completely oblivious yeah but instead of shooting him which he could have done and just gotten away right there um he tr- he lowers his gun and ends up tracking this dude to a parking lot and he says hey do you why does Damien have a problem with you? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then Martin again, motherfucker. Well, and Martin was like, Hey, I was supposed to kill you tonight. You dumb son of a bitch. (laughs) Try to help you out here. And he's like, I owe him $8,000. And Martin's like, that's it. And he's like, yeah. And he says, all right, I need you to get in my car then. And so they go to a meeting 
not with Damien. Oh, let's talk about this meeting. <laughs> but it is, it's the Yakuza. Yes. And there is a dude who is ceremonially firing a bow and arrow, which they interrupt. And he's, he's like, not happy about that. no, he's like, get the fuck out of the way. And they're like, oh, sorry. And Martin just kind of waits in this long hallway where this dude's firing a bow and arrow. Meanwhile, in this office behind them, which you can see into glass room. Yeah, because it's a glass room. There is, um, there's this Yakuza boss. The Korean guy goes in there, um, which is how he's described in the, uh, credits. Actually, it's just the Korean man. He, Mm -hmm. He goes in there to explain what's going on. Also in there is a lady in a red dress. Yep. And, and Hideo Kojima. Which, like, I knew he was in this, and I was waiting for it. This is his, his only cameo. He, he was only in it for a couple, but Kojima is in this, and my mind is fucking blown. <laughs> like, even when the ref and her buddies, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, like, and, and for, why those, not? <laughs> for those who don't know, Hideo Kojima is uh, a, a video game designer, and he did all the Metal Gear games. Metal which, Gear. Which are fucking bonkers. Of course they are. Of course they're best friends. Right. Like, you could not pick two better people to be like, you know, like, he's probably, uh, Reffin's probably the dude who hooked up Kojima with Mads Mikkelsen, you know? Yeah, of course. (laughs) So. uh, This is my buddy Mads. Yeah. I I was telling him, you're doing the game called, what is it, Death Standing? No, Death Stranding. Yeah. Oh, yes, whatever. I'm sure it'll be great. Anyway, Mads. (laughs) Uh, you should be in it. It's going to be so good. There's going to be liquid babies. You'll love it. <laughs> and like for listeners, if you want to get a sense of Hideo Kojima, just Google trailer for Death Stranding. Oh, yeah. It looks fucking bonkers. Right. It's completely bizarre. Yeah. So Hideo Kojima is a dude with a samurai sword. Yeah, which we will see how he uses it in the most awesome way ever. Yeah, so the Yakuza boss, clearly what is happening, we don't really hear this. He's going in and begging for 8000 to pay off his debt. Right, to explain to him, like, hey, this dude was going to kill me tonight. And instead, I'm coming to you because, like, and the Yakuza boss, like, pulls out the money and just hits him in the fucking head with the money well, a couple this of is times. a massive dishonor because yakuza still follows samurai principles which is like honor class better to die at the hands of your enemy than being taken captive right and this so in in y- yakuza fashion the dude the, the boss <laughs> so puts the money in the dude's mouth yep <laughs> and then has his uh, like one of his flunkies hold the dude's hand up so that his pinky is extended mm-hmm. and then uh <laughs> Hideo Kojima <laughs> takes the samurai sword and just lops off the dude's pinky yeah like it's a half a carrot yeah <laughs> which is also traditionally um if you were disgraced in the yakuza yep the way to compensate for for your, the disgrace you have given to the clan is to lop off a finger. Yep. And so this is historically accurate, Duncan, mm-hmm. which is important to note. But it's mm-hmm. this whole scene is just the best. And yeah. 
Because the room is, like, the colours are vibrant, they're weird. Painted in the background is the old uh, Edo um, map, uh, flag. Yeah. So that's all painted out with it. Just nuts. Looks fucking nuts. So stylish, super stylish. The, the room that the guy's firing arrows in is painted like a canary yellow in the background with, uh, like, a fake forest design so it's trees that are all painted on the walls just the most stylish thing that's ever happened um, and this guy's finger gets locked off and we can't really hear him cry out in too much agony but we are going to jump forward to the after effect of that <laughs> right where his hand is kind of half-ass wrapped up mm. and martin has taken him to meet with uh damien and da- <laughs> this korean guy is like hey i'm really hurt and damien's <laughs> like yeah that looks fucked up yeah and i'm not dead i'm just very badly burned it, yeah it's kind of like that but he gives the eight thousand dollars that he got from the the yakuza boss to damien and he's like yeah. are we good now and he and damien's like yeah we're good you you're you paid up and uh he says well can i have a ride to the hospital and damien says no get the fuck out of here <laughs> and martin is not saying a word you know and celestino tries to give some money that you know they've just gotten paid to martin and martin's like just keep it i don't want to do this shit anymore and so his take on it is i don't want to i don't want to shake down or i don't want to murder people for eight thousand dollars yeah and damien like clearly doesn't want to lose the like he sees that martin's a hard worker and all the rest so he starts and he also likes the idea of having a cult working for him but he starts giving up do you want to run girls do you, you know what do you want to do like what what do i need to do to keep you with me right and, and martin's counter is the basically put me on your books as your own personal vigo <laughs> yeah yeah i mean essentially that's it it's just, he says give me your worst your worst guys mm-hmm. and damien is like all right you ever been to albuquerque yeah and he he's like no is that <laughs> is that now north dakota and he's like no dumbass it's new mexico also there are two brothers down there making rape films mm-hmm. and uh he's like so think of all the girls that they're hurting so you need to get down there and murder them and uh but there's there's a great moment where damien uh when when martin's like you know i i don't want this money when damien's like well with such high moral standards how can i say no to this man (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's really smooth i like damien a lot and like damien does plenty of heinous shit and he is not in it for the right reasons None of that. He's just a businessman. But yeah, but he's got a weird sense of he's got a weird sense in morals, if you know what I mean. Like for for a criminal, you know what I mean? He's got this weird kind of code that he lives to. It's this worldview which he imparts and he's regardless if he's good or bad, he's consistent. You know what I mean? Yeah, and but there's I, a consistent approach amongst everything. He's not really bending the rules here. To him, that guy knew like like we're all like a guy's life for eight thousand but what he basically says is that guy knew what he was getting into when he borrowed the money yes and yes. this is this is paid this is what the world is like it's why he treats it with the same tone and the same rationale that he treats his daughter falling down on the ice and having to pick herself up yes is dealt with with the same measure tone and that's what makes him an interesting character yeah, I, I like the character a lot. Like I said, he's not a good guy, but... He's but, not a good guy at all. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, like, 
I'm I'm what I'm really interested in and well we'll we'll get to it in a second. Let's uh finish this up because there's only one more little scene here in this episode, mm-hmm. which is Vigo calling Martin up, who is at a car dealership buying a car to make his trip to New Mexico. <laughs> yeah. And Vigo's like, What are you doing? And he's like, I'm buying a car. I gotta get out of town for a few days. And Vigo says, Uh, well, I'm I'm out hunting. Mm. And Martin wishes him good luck. And then the last shot, unless I miss something, is just Vigo kind of waiting in his car as we see a reflection of trees kind of obscuring yeah. his face. Yes, that's all we and, see. And that's it. And that's the mm-hmm. end of that episode where we, we have both our our characters out hunting bad guys. Yep. And there endeth um, the fourth episode of Too Old to, uh, to Die, uh, Pinky. <laughs> Um, so what I was getting at, the thing I'm looking forward to is we've set up all these really interesting characters like Damien and Celestine and Diana and Vigo and Martin and Jesus and the High Priestess of Death, Yaritza, and, uh, what's his name? The shitty kid, uh, Don Ricardo's kid that we hate so much, Miguel. He's this, and uh, no, Miguel, yeah. Yeah, so all that going on, and I'm... I'm excited to see all of these things start bumping into each other now. Well, they're about, aren't they? Because Albuquerque's where? Right next to Mexico. That's why they yeah. call it New Mexico, is because yeah. of how close to old Mexico it is. Yeah. I know geography. I'm an American. And what you have, what we have here is we have, like, Hawk and uh, the High Priestess of Death, Yuritsa, are like weird mirrors of each other. And that they're the these kind of vigilante vengeance killers, <laughs> yeah. But we've, I, like, and a weird like it's weird how like we're we're setting up like a, there is a degree of symmetry here. We're following on one side, we're following the the downward spiral um, and indoctrination of Jesus into the cartel. By the end of that, he's become this enforcer, this killer for his clearly mad, corrupt criminal boss brother. And then we have the the weird kind of the weird kind of rational version of that, and the American side is Damien, who has his hired gun, who is Martin. So we're setting up these kind of these power structures, which are gonna they are going to collide at some point, and that to me is hugely interesting. Yeah, and and because it's not going to be as simple as like Martin is going to be after Jesus for any particular reason. Like, I don't think Martin has any desire for vengeance. You know, he's no. just, he's too much of a non-entity. It's not even that he doesn't have anything for vengeance. I don't think he's all that interested who killed Larry. Right, right. Like, uh, like yeah, he's no. not, he's not personally tied to Larry any more than, like, you know, he said in what the first episode, like, fuck Larry. Yeah. You know, um, so he doesn't really give a shit. Like, Jesus... It, like learning that he's the one who is, actually killed Magdalena, Jesus's mother. Like mm-hmm. that's his reason to go after Martin. So Martin might defend himself, but you know, at at a certain point, hasn't that been that vengeance been slaked when he killed Larry? Yeah. So there is a world in which Martin and Jesus are kind of, uh, you know, allies to some degree. Yeah, and that's what's going to be, like, nothing is black or white in this. And I, I think that's what really makes it interesting about where we go. Um, we are, at this stage, about four hours and 50 minutes 
into our show. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, which is, in fact, we're, we'll be over that because by the episode four, we were almost at the four hour mark and we've had another hour. So we're about, we're about five hours done with four episodes and we're not even at the halfway mark yet. But I am totally engrossed, totally engaged. I love, like, this show is not doing anything wrong for me. And even when we were kind of joking about how slow the scenes are in those first two episodes, and neither one of these episodes felt like there was any pacing issues at all. Um, I I, I mean, yes, sometimes the characters take a bit of time to say things, but... um, you know what I mean? I, the, I didn't feel like they were overly labouring any particular shot or any particular dialogue. Out with the long scene along the pond with, um, you know, Hawk and, and uh, the, the, the psychic. But even then, I, I was totally engaged with what was happening in the scene. Once again, the one of the unsung heroes is the is the Cliff Martinez score, which is fucking amazing. And it really, it's so... When you have those long shots, that scores what keeps you going with the shots, and it's working in parallel in a way that makes me over the moon. And it's just, I'd like, I am loving everything this show's doing. I really, really am. I think it, it, it is giving me, it's given me the characters, and it's not just being weird for the sake of weird. Even though we are getting some weird scenes, it kind of feels like those scenes are are there to serve a purpose, even if it is to make you uneasy or make you laugh or question what's happening. Um, like, when the reference legit killing this series, I like, he's really, really, really got me in. And the fact that you are as on board as you are, yeah, when I'm... really what he's doing, in my opinion, is doing what he does, makes me think when you start to revisit some of those older, this maybe is the weird stopgap to get you into some of these older stuff that you've already seen. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. Maybe I'll go back and watch Drive and enjoy it a lot more. Um, but yeah, I, I I really have enjoyed uh, what I've seen so far this season. I like both these episodes quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. I like you said when things get weird, uh, I I stop and have a good time, and it it keeps things interesting and peppy. And I feel like there weren't you know those kinds of weird touches in in something like a Drive. You know, maybe the Albert mm-hmm. Brooks scenes to to some degree, but um, yeah, I, I'm just having a, like this feels very tonally interesting in that sometimes it's very silly and very campy, and then it'll get just dark as shit. But there seems to be something kind of slyly funny about the whole thing. Yeah, and and I'm I'm just I, like I dig the tone. I think all the performances in it have been really good. Uh, I'm I'm interested even like even the side characters that I shouldn't give a shit about in another show like the the father of the girl that one of the main characters <laughs> has seen is not a character I would normally expect to be one of my favorites on the show but the every time Theo shows up I'm like oh like we didn't get into how uh, like he wasn't as bananas as he was with the stuffed animals from the first episode but he's just such a mm-hmm. weird character that he's continually super interesting to watch and mm-hmm. and so yeah I'm, I'm having a great time with it i'm I, like i said I, i'm looking forward to things starting to bump into each other and and cause some more friction now that it feels like all our our chess pieces are on the board now and our alliances are kind of somewhat established so let's see what happens when we start mixing these characters up 
And, Agreed. Uh, Agreed. So I'm looking forward to the the next couple of episodes. Speaking of things we're looking forward to, Duncan, mm-hmm. we, we like to end every episode with what we are looking forward to in the coming week, along with uh, some more stuff to pimp. So unless uh, you had some more points to make about tonight's episodes that I rudely stepped on, uh, then tell me what, what it is that you're looking forward to watching and where people can find you. Um, so before the next time we speak, I should have seen both the new Annabelle movie and the new Jim Jarmusch movie. So, because uh, they're both out this weekend in the UK, which is fucking nuts. Like so much horror in the cinema. <laughs> yeah, it, it is really crazy. I uh... it's so, like so, so I'm I'm very much looking forward to both of them because uh, Annabelle's been out in the states for over a week now, and reviews have been surprisingly good. So I'm looking forward to checking that one out. Um, I am. Uh, my my pick is going to be not so recent, but uh, I kind of joked about it earlier. But I recently got a subscription to the Criterion Channel. Um, oh, nice! And the reason being is because I also picked up. Uh, the Donald Ritchie book on the history of Japanese cinema. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm not looking forward to any movie in particular. I'm looking forward to watching some of these early, like 1920s and thirties Jap- silent Japanese films while reading a book that gives you the context of these movies were made at this time during this thing. And, mm-hmm. and so I'm really excited because I like I've seen a shit ton of like Japanese sci-fi and fantasy and horror and stuff. I haven't really watched a lot of the other films that those movies in many ways are a response to. So I'm trying to deepen my knowledge somewhat and also watch some kind of kick-ass movies that I haven't seen. Like there's there, there are so many like weird Japanese gangster movies I've never seen that I've always heard are awesome. So oh, I'm, I've got ton of them as well arrow uh arrow video in the uk puts out loads of them i've got loads that i've just never opened from like the 60s and 70s yeah so i'm i'm gonna be diving into a lot of that stuff and and i'm just i couldn't be more excited like the book that i've been reading like uh paul schrader does the intro for it and oh, nice. uh, the guy uh just a quick shout out to this guy donald ritchie the guy who um who wrote the book uh initially um, was I think he was in the military even and moved to Japan in like the early 50s mm. and so was there during some of the big boom of Japanese cinema and became just kind of ensconced in the culture and in, in, in film in, in particular there and so wrote like it has a first-hand account of like no 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 these are the big beats of Japanese cinema and here's the early stuff it, anyway it's, it's incredibly well written it's really conversational it's really interesting and uh, and, and, uh, like I said, just providing context, you know how it is. Like when you get interested in like Italian cinema or whatever the fuck it is, the more, you mm-hmm. know, about the other kinds of movies that were going on in the culture, give you a context to appreciate those movies in a way that you, you only can, if you bother to do that kind of work. And oh yeah, of course. So anyway, that's what I'm excited to watch. And then you can go to legionpodcasts.com where you can see all sorts of stuff where uh, the last episode of pick six movies is about to uh, uh, drop for this season. And then we'll take a couple of weeks off. And in between that, you know, obviously I do a bunch of other shit and you can hear uh, shows like this one and many more, uh, not just including me, but like uh, cinema psyops is doing their big retrospective on all the Romero of the dead movies. 
and uh, and that's been really good and interesting. And Court Court and Matt have done a lot of research and know a lot of shit about those movies, so I actually learned a lot on that Dawn of the Dead episode, mm-hmm. uh, which is always nice. So yeah, so check all that stuff out. And uh, Duncan, did I cut you off? Did you already tell people about podcast under the stairs? No, oh, but in a way to check out. All right, uh, podcast under the stairs. Uh, <laughs> you know i almost went to the like uh uh shit the the when the wood starts uh pouring water onto all the ads and the fog <laughs> yeah the fire uh, duncan is not stevie wayne and this is not uh a smooth jazz station uh mm-hmm. this is in fact duncan and Bo come correct we uh, do appreciate you taking uh time to listen to this episode as well as the show and then please leave us a review uh on the podcast catcher of your choice um in the meantime we're gonna be back next week to talk about episodes uh five and six yeah across the halfway mark yes that that will officially be the halfway point of uh of this season of duncan and bo come correct as we look at uh nicholas winding reference uh two uh happy to die slappy (laughs) It's also worth saying before we go, it has been confirmed that the new season of The Terror is due in October. So we will do that in October. Ooh, it'll be a Halloween spooky fest. Woo! The Terror? Anyway, I like saying it like that. Bro, did I ever tell you that I used to be a werewolf? Did you? Yeah, I'm all right. Uh, listen, I used to be a werewolf, but I'm all right now. Oh, shit. <laughs> I was going to say, how'd you kick it? <laughs> so Wolf Spain. You know, yeah. when my favorite way, uh, we'll end the show here in a minute, ladies and gentlemen. One one of my favorite ways I ever heard, like, uh, when I was a kid, I tried to figure out how I could become a werewolf. Oh, right. uh, um, and, like, getting bit by a werewolf seemed like a long shot because I wasn't hanging around that kind of crowd. Yeah, it's difficult to find as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> werewolves, not swearwolves. Uh, one of the best ways I ever heard was uh, drinking water, like uh, standing water from the the print of a wolf. Ah. Uh, was supposed to be a way. And again, same problem, no wolves around. But I was like, that's probably my best bet. <laughs> I had a ranking of like, how can I best and quick, most quickly become a monster and that was like number one with a bullet <laughs> all right we'll be back in a week say good night duncan good night duncan bye bye <laughs> if life is like a candle bright then death must be the wind you can close your window tight and it still comes blowing in so I will climb the highest hill and I'll watch the rising sun and pray that I won't feel the chill Till I'm too old to die young Let me watch my children grow To see what they become 
Too old to die young. 